0: welcome to episode three of the prosper podcast
1: come on as always i'm here with my producer glenn how you doing man i'm going good how are you yeah good it's friday afternoon friday are they having a cheeky beer while we record this you are yeah yeah i'm not (laughs) why not
2: Uh, i'm not drinking at the moment.
0: Yeah, I didn't realise. Didn't you? No. Oh.
2: Part of the health challenge. Okay. Sixty nine days of resisting alcohol and sweets. That's just one part of there's eight parts. Resisting.
1: Resist. Do you have to like fully resist or it's like, no, no, I don't want to be a bit
0: alright if you insist.
1: <laughs> well, you can uh
0: I could do that. <laughs> you could do that.
2: Well you can you can if you do enough days in a row or something, you earn extra X and you can uh you can drink that day and just put an X down. So it's uh you don't have to do every day, but you're trying to earn as many X's as possible. Cross as many things How are you off as possible. This? Uh there's like a scorecard.
1: Okay. Yeah. What's it called?
2: Uh the sixty nine X challenge. <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay. I think it's a bit of a uh it's a bit of a ripoff of a – I I think there was something called the T seventy five challenge or something like that. T
1: seventy five challenge. Yeah. So and they kinda just what did that involve?
2: Uh, similar things, uh, you had to drink like a, a certain amount of water, um, do a certain diet, not drink alcohol, stuff like that. But they're basically, these guys have taken that idea into a community that I'm a part of and they've just like changed bits and pieces around. They mm. got rid of the water thing and um, you have to meditate, practice, That's learn, awesome. resist, 45 minutes of exercise a day. Yeah. Create. That's pretty cool.
1: I should have had some more water this morning. I had a a blood test. Oh, yeah. Just a routine blood test. Um, And she couldn't find a vein. Mm. So, yeah, she was like stabbing me and stuff. And then I had to go drink two big cups of water and come back. When I came back, it wouldn't stop bleeding. So funny. I was like mucking around with her. I was like... She's like, You okay? I'm like, Oh, I think I'm about to pass out. She, <laughs> she, she got really stressed. I'm like, No, nah, nah, I'm not kidding. I think it's her job to get stressed
2: in that situation to <laughs> <Yeah>. be honest. <laughs> so yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I sh- I sh- I should know when it's appropriate to make jokes. Yeah. And it's not. I think that was probably a time where it I
2: wasn't. Any time there's needles involved, it's probably it's probably not time to joke.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure. But, but it helps me, like, you know, I am not scared of needles, but I'm mm. like, oh, I'm not looking forward to it. So I just yeah. entertain myself. Yeah, fair enough. And um I think today it was at her expense. But anyway.
2: So water is important,
1: especially if you're getting a blood test.
2: Yes, it is. I've had to, um, I've had to do that as well. Go and get a a blood test at a different place because I think if they stick it in you three times and doesn't work, that that's it. They can't do it anymore. Yeah. So they have to really? get a new nurse or something. But sometimes if you go to these blood places and they're kind of small, they might only have one person on. So I had to go to a different place. Yeah. yeah. Wow.
1: Well, she's saying to me, she's like, "Oh, you could go to a blood test clinic, um, and get it in your hand." you want oh yeah and she's like really fighting for me to not get it done but i was like i don't want to waste time going to another
2: clinic the hand hurts more
0: yeah
1: i was just like i'll drink some water and she's like really disappointed i think because <laughs> i was mucking around with it she's just like i want to get rid of this guy <laughs> Getting
2: out of my clinic
1: but today's episode we're talking with luke wood who is the ceo and co-founder of a really cool company called Escavox.
2: he's uh, a man with a lot of good ideas
1: he's got Great ideas and zero filters, Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. I love. Yeah, it was I love. very,
2: very entertaining.
1: He's just always authentic. Like yeah. what I love about Luke is if you ask him a question, he will be 100% honest. So yeah, very appreciative for him. He's a busy man coming mm. down and spending a couple of hours with us. So um, let's get to the interview. Enjoy.
3: My um, my wife's cousin has had a lot of surgery recently and is one of these guys that when you go, how are you feeling? Actually, tells you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you, do you like that? No, because you never want to hear the word hemorrhoids, <laughs> <laughs> anus, oh. bowel. So it wasn't. Elective you don't want to hear that over coffee at the beach.
1: Certainly not coffee. What? what, about, what you, you want to hear
3: is no, it's going okay, thanks. What about? That's the, what you want to hear. What about the word urethra? Urethra. You see? No, you don't want that. Oh. <laughs> oh,
4: okay. Well, we, we better not have the conversation. No, let's then. not have
3: that. <laughs> no, you don't. Don't ever need that. Not from family. The word hemorrhoid should never come into a family conversation. Mm, definitely ever. has <laughs>
1: come into some of my family conversations, unfortunately.
3: But I don't want. I cool. If that's, I'm. I'm glad you're taking care of it. Mm. You can just tell me I'm taking care of it. Yeah, that's an overshare.
1: Yeah, yeah. So what? What did you like? You've asked them how are they, and they've told yeah, you. Yeah, so it's
3: like a casual. Like they've arrived. We've met. It's a family thing. We're having coffee. Mm. Hey, Tom, how are you? Did Did it all go okay? Yeah, it's good. Well, I've got some hemorrhoids and we're taking care of those and my anus is a little bit sore. Here you go, <laughs> <laughs> I want none of that, Tom. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for coming. But no, stick with mm. I'm okay. That and you're would still be about thinking it. about it like weeks later. Oh, That's the worst part. and my part. wife's horrified because it's her, her family. Mm. And now we've got this rule when Tom – don't ask Tom how Tom is because <laughs> Tom will actually tell you. So stick to anything but how's Tom.
4: I love it. And you can't really follow up by – no, where'd you know, go exactly, with that? Yeah, ah, yeah. you can't tell, pick up the next tell, week. Tell me how's more. your hemorrhoids, Tom? Yeah, how's your anus? Yeah, exactly.
3: yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, no, yeah, you, 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 nothing. You look around the room awkwardly and go, "How about that <laughs> Facebook thing?" You know, it's, it's dreadful. <sighs> how about that? Are you talking about the news? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. What are your thoughts it? on that? Ah, oh, mate, they've shot themselves in the foot. Google they've, as well, right? No, well, they've shown how much power they've got, and that's mm. going to scare people. And now everyone's going to go, "Hang on, didn't realise you could do that." And they've also done another problem. What they've shown is they can switch it off in a heartbeat. So hang on, it took you five years to solve some basic personal security problems, but you can turn that shit off with one button press. Mm. Now, mate, you've just shown me how dangerous you are. And my only fear, so 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 they've shown how much power they've got, which is kind of interesting because we've it should scare you, right? What they did yesterday. Mm. And everyone should be reeling from that a little bit. And so they've shown the power, and my hope now is that serious politicians go, way too much power in one place. You've now demonstrated what we're scared of. Therefore, we have to fragment and change. We've got to do something. Whether the law we're or not is right or wrong, I don't really know, but they've demonstrated the power that we're all scared of. Mm. And I think that will come back to bite them. The ridiculous argument is the, um, no, you've got to turn it all back on. We should turn around and go, no, fuck it, you're off. Mm. And if you were relying on Facebook, go find a different way of doing it. There's enough. There's enough avenues now to go yeah. do this and self-hosting and everything else to go do this. Who's relying on Facebook? Oh, millions. My wife does. Isn't it discretionary? Yeah, but it. it but my wife doesn't. It sends me crazy. Mm. But they've what they've shown in five hours is how much power they got. Well, Twitter did something
1: similar. I mean, just they just turned off Donald Trump, which is you know most people were happy about that, but. Are we happy with Twitter having that much power?
3: No, but we're giving them the power, right? So what's good is they're now exposing themselves for how much control they've got. Mm. We're exposing how far behind our legislation is because we haven't kept up with it. And so we'll hopefully force it. But there's there's a really good book. Have you read Entertaining Ourselves to Death? No. Oh, read that. Mm. So he wrote it in about 1984, 1983, so early 80s, late 70s maybe right? Yep. It's called entertain ourselves to death. And his argument, his premise is this, right? we all we want is entertainment. We want sound bites. We want single lines. Um, we're taking our ability away to think critically. Mm. And if we constantly demand one-liners, they'll constantly give us one-liners and we'll lose our ability to actually think. What will then happen is dickheads will take control because they'll keep feeding us pablum and rubbish mm. and we will lose our scientific ability. Trump was just all headline and no, oh, yeah. no capability, right? And it's playing out. But if you read the book, you could put a fancy cover on it and people will think you wrote it this year because of the Twitter thing. Yeah, wow. And it's 40-some years old. And he's going, no, nah, the problem is we've educated our way ourselves. We've got no scientific literacy. We've got no capability to think for ourselves. If it's not spoon-fed, we're idiots. I That's saw a it.
1: meme about that, which was, um, you know, after Trump got – you know, cancelled or whatever. There's a meme which said journalists are gonna to have to actually report on real news now. Well they you don't saw them looking up upset.
3: But <laughs> it's we've cr- doing, we issue press releases now where we write the whole thing and they just cut paste and away you go. Yeah. Which is hilariously sad. Mm. You
1: want someone just to show you everything. Just show us what happened. Don't give your opinion or your bias. Just show us the data and then we can interpret it ourselves. Yeah, but but
3: there's always a bias, right? This inherent bias because every event always has a, a subjective point of view to some degree, other than the most purest scientific event, but that doesn't really occur. So what you've got to do is you've got to educate yourself enough to say, either understand the lens that I'm looking through, so I understand there is a bias, mm. and or view this from two or three different channels so that I can accommodate that view. It's also our own lens as well, right? Yeah, no, exactly. So you've got to, you've got to understand that I have my own bias and all those kind of things. And you can, it's not hard to do shit, go and read the New York Times, Al Jazeera, the BBC, and you'll get three views of the same mm. headline and you, somewhere it's in there. It's it, consuming though, right?
4: Fox News as well?
3: Uh, yeah, but at some point you've got to draw the line and go, <laughs> you're just a fucking idiot, right? <laughs> at, at some point you can afford to cut off and go, that's no longer even valid. Yeah, just because you can speak freely doesn't mean I've got to listen.
1: Mm. But how about just not
3: cutting bits and pieces out,
1: like removing edited interviews? How do you mean? politicians. So, you know, for example, Donald Trump might talk about something and then Fox News will use this much mm-hmm. and then CNN will use this much and swing it a certain way. What if there was a platform where you could just
3: watch what he actually said? Well, there is. What? And that's why you record everything <laughs> that happens in the White House. That's why everything in the Senate is permanently recorded. That's why you've got C-SPAN. That's why you got all these things. So all of that exists. Do you think it's accessible? No, we choose not to consume it because we've entertained ourselves to death. Okay. Right? So we, we've convinced ourselves we don't need to and we've placed trust in media agents that say, don't worry, I'll translate it for you because you don't have time for this. Mm. And so we've entertained ourselves to yeah, death, they've right? become
1: part of our self-map, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, I relate to CNN or ABC News and that's my but trusted
4: news even, source. Even in, in the recent um, impeachment trial where we got exposed to a much broader amount of information, still was an acquittal.
3: Uh, yeah, but th- I think that's a uh, nobody really cared about the information, right?
4: How could you not? The information was… because
3: the, the the jury were part of the people being convicted. They were <laughs> they committed the damn no, crime. Yeah, yeah,
4: that's actually the story. But but the information that was presented.
3: Oh, if you actually went off the information, it's a no brainer. Mm. But this is the point: nobody's even looking. I've just written a forty eight page investment memorandum, and I know most people won't read more than the first two pages. Mm. And the only reason I've written it is A, so it looks like a big document, and B, when somebody does ask me possibly a question on it, I can say, look at page 38, and they're going to go, fuck, I've got to read the document. (laughs) (laughs) I've written it, it's crazy. I've got a 10 meg spreadsheet that justifies a budget, and nobody's going to look beyond the first tab that says profit in 2026 is going to be uber gazillions of millions.
1: Well, it's kind of more like a lookup, right? They can go, all right, I'm interested in this line item. So then they can go down and find
3: it. No, you're an analyst. No. They're they're looking for confidence. So if you come to me and say, what's your projected financials for next year? And I write one line on a piece of paper and give it to you, I don't trust what you're giving me. Mm. If I say, here's a 10-meg spreadsheet and a 40-page document, but here's the one line, you go, oh, he's worked hard for his one line. Mm-hmm. I'm making you feel better about what I've done. Did you work hard? Yeah. But okay. it's a lot of false precision and a lot of guesswork. Mm. And all I've really done is when you come back and argue my one line, I've just got an argument ready. Yeah. Whether it's valid or not, neither of us know because we're guessing stuff three, four, five years out. Mm. So all I'm doing is trying to tell a story. But if I just give you a page, you don't believe me. If I give you a page and a bunch of stuff that looks like I'm busy and I've worked on it, you believe me. I'm just playing the game.
1: So are you are you doing it? To also do the analysis yourself, or yes. are you predominantly just doing it because you want it 40 pages? No, so,
3: so a, a bit of both, but it's a fair question. So I've got to come out with 40 pages. And if you do it with genuine integrity, what you do is you come out with a much better answer. Mm. But if you, a lot of people just do it. So if you go and look on like a wholesale investor or any of the crowdsourcing, you know, the crowd capital platforms, yep. uh, I don't know who they are, but you know what, you're going to look at most people's documents, right? It's just noise and crap and fancy colors. and They the- probably did it on Fiverr. Paid someone five Well, bucks yeah, to exactly. Do it. You know, they've paid some <laughs> poor Indonesian girl to go yeah. write a pretty-looking document, right? Yeah. And actually, if you actually read them, they dissolve so quickly. Yeah. And you'll find, but if you put the time into it, and you actually create something of value, you end up actually creating. You, you adjust your business, and you think about it yeah. as you go along you, the path, you,
4: right? You nailed it. You've you've done the. Critical analysis. You've actually done the work. And which means that your answer is better, as best as it can be, yeah. given that it's a complex world. Uh, and therefore, you've come up with a good answer that you can stand by. So
3: there's, done, there's another really good book uh, called The Pyramid Principle. You should read that, right, which talks about how you translate information and it talks about the pyramid and everything else. So a really good one comes out. Everyone wants the summary line, right? Everyone talks about execs wanting three bullet points and no more, yep. which is valid. I understand that. But what you want is three bullet points to go, right, if I want to know more about that one, now give me that. Mm. I want to know more about that, now give me that. And and the pyramid principle talks about I should be able to summarise my business into one or two points at the top of the pyramid, and every question you ask just keeps building that out. Mm. And so if you do that legitimately and genuinely, you end up with a completely cohesive story that hangs together and you can justify any one piece and you can show the map, right? Right. And um, that forces you to come out with a better answer. Mm. And it means that your summary and your top three points are incredibly easy to write Mm. because it's a natural progression of where you are. So you write it from the base up, but you present it from the top down. And as you go through it, you find the gaps and you do it. But you end up with a much better business and you end up with a capability and an understanding so that when I sit in front of someone as an investor and I've got this 40-page document and 10 meg spreadsheet, and they say, well, what sells in 2026 and why are you doing X? I don't even have to look at it. I can just talk. Yeah. I, I'm not quoting a page. I'm talking about the theory and the attitude behind it. And that's a confidence thing again because actually you've understood a 40-page document. You know what you're talking about. Therefore, I'm going to start trusting you again And because you've taken the time to actually generate this material.
4: What's the fun part for you though, mate? What's the, what makes it fun? What makes it fun
3: yeah. is every now and again you get to convince somebody you're going to change the world. And every now and again, somebody fucking believes you.
4: <laughs> and, and do you believe yourself?
3: Sometimes. So, and this week, in fact, just just this week, what what's real fun is you come up with a theory, right? Yep. I just I, I live in a theoretical world, and so you look at what's going on and you go, "Oh, I can fucking solve that with a theory." So, you come up with a theory and a principle. And then, if you're really stupid, you say, let's start a business and test that theory. Right. <laughs> yep. And then I you I think st- you've done that. You start, I've done it a couple of times, right? I
4: think I've heard you yeah, talk yeah. about the theory.
3: The theory. I sat in a room with you and said, this is really cool theory. And I reckon I could change the world. Right.
4: And I said, go do, I think, or something along right. those lines.
3: Anyway, this morning, uh, yesterday morning, about four o'clock yesterday morning, I had a call, we had a, a very, very wealthy group in London and an even wealthier group in San Francisco who were buying the dream. Like we're talking crazy buying the dream. Wow. And you go through this really weird moment of fuck, I think I think they're believing me. This is weird. This is potentially wrong. Was that fun? Oh yeah, that's a I mean, that's a high. I mean that's, you get a high that's the call, right? That's intense, mm. right? That's really intense. The high is that's a call with so three very, very influential people. Like they've, these guys have got their hands literally on billions of dollars, right? And they're looking for the next change. They're looking for something. And I spent, yeah, 90 minutes on the phone with them, not a note in front of me, not one thing, and said, this is how we can go do it. That's fun. Of course that's fun. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's – two and a half, three years slogging bloody hard work to have an easy 90-minute meeting, which still could fall on its ass, don't get me wrong. But, yeah, that's enormous fun. And it was easy. Of course it is because, you know, once you know your stuff, everything's easy, mm. right? If you're working within your envelope, by default it's easy because you know it.
1: So 4.30 a.m., yeah, yeah, just tell me this. Were you sleeping before that or did you just stay up all night?
3: No, you sleep before that because <laughs> it's you're talking about what you do. yeah. This is why I don't – if you know your subject, why is it a problem? Most people get nervous because they don't know what they're talking about. So
1: you just had a normal sleep, woke up, yeah. jumped on the
3: – drove the into the office. I went to the office because – then the kids don't get up and annoy me. But, yeah, well, no, it was well, fine.
1: Maybe the other way around. Oh, yeah,
3: yeah, <laughs> probably the other way around. But it's like I don't understand why people get upset about job interviews. All you've got to do is talk about yourself. How easy is that? Surely you know yourself. Mm. And everyone gets all nervous. Well, it's
1: just yeah. the nerves, yeah.
3: Yeah, but what you're nervous about, all they can do is ask you about you. Surely you know that. Some of the
1: questions are hard, though. It's like, you know, tell us the time you failed. It's like, oh, I don't know. Which one do I talk about? I fail all the time.
3: Well, yeah, but that's not a hard question then.
1: Right. Tell us about the time you failed.
3: Oh, like (laughs) every 33 seconds. (laughs) So I I failed this morning. Okay. I I failed this morning because I should have been stronger and I should have convinced – One of my guys to change his behavior and he said something that I should have called out and I didn't because it was the easier, easier option not to. Mm. And I failed at that hurdle. That's a good answer. And I screwed that up and I know I failed and I really should have done it differently, but I, I failed at that. Did you learn from it? No. I <laughs> know. <laughs> uh, I learned. I learned that I consistently fail at that. <laughs> I love it. No, but the,
4: so, yeah. If Mate, as your coach, I will take you through that learning. Yeah, Don't yeah, worry. No, we, we'll spend some time no, on that. No, but there's,
3: <laughs> but it, so yeah, that you can, you know, everyone gets wrapped up in the moment of the, oh my God, I've got to have the right kind of failure for an interview and everything yeah. else. And then you end up coming across like a dickhead. Yeah. Oh, well, my failure is I'm too much of a perfectionist and I work too hard. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Really he that really
4: British,
1: doesn't he? It's... Well, I am well, what British. is your yeah, what is your background?
3: I I'm terribly English. Yes. Okay. I've spent ten years at an English private school, and my mother is very disappointed in the direction <laughs> that my accent and general speech has gone. Okay. When yes. did you come to Australia? Uh I arrived in Australia at the end of twenty twenty, uh January twenty twenty one. Uh no, not twenty twenty one. That's this recent. year. Yeah. No, uh two thousand and one. So twenty years ago. Oh,
1: Okay, that's quite a different answer.
3: I, I only came for six. <laughs> I came here you, for six weeks. You came so. for
4: the World Cup, wasn't it? No, or no, 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 I Road came.
3: Union? I came for six weeks. Uh, so that's working out well. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. No, I was. I was due to move to the US. Okay. Um, so I was. In fact, we were talking about this earlier. So I was. I was working for a big retailer in London, and I was deploying computer systems and stuff. And um, the software company, the software that I was deploying, wanted to employ me. But I I had a fairly tight non-compete, so I couldn't work for them in the UK for 12 months. So they said, all cool, we'll give you a job in the US because then you're out of your your non-compete zone, right? Come to the US, work for us over here for a year, and then we'll put you back into London. And I'm like, sweet, because London is the centre of the world and there's no reason to ever leave London, which is what you feel like if you ever live in London. And uh, so I was like, yep, sweet, let's do that. And they said, cool, move to the States. And I was due to move to Raleigh, North Carolina. And – just before I moved, they signed a deal down here with Coles, and they phoned me and went, hey, shit, we've done a deal in Australia, which we weren't planning on, but it's retail, it's your background, go do. Can you go down to Australia, set up the office, get it, get it going, and then come to the States? And I went, yeah, cool. So I came down here and it was actually pretty cool because I sat in a bar in London with who's then going to be my boss. I, I'd been to Sydney once for two days um about six months before he'd never been to sydney right and we said well we need somewhere to live and we need an office and all this kind of shit and we were this is just the internet's just really sort of finding itself at this point right we sat in a bar and the barman had a laptop connected because like you didn't have free wi-fi in bars back then and we said look can we use it and we looked up an estate agent in sydney and he said where are you going to live and i went i don't know i actually live in sydney i don't know And the barman had been to Sydney a couple of years ago, and he went, my mate lived in Balmain. That was quite nice. (laughs) And we went, all right, we will live in Balmain. good choice. And then um, he said, how much rent do you pay now? And I lived in West London, and I can't remember the number. Call it £1,000 a month, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. right? He went, right, what's that in Aussie dollars? Which was three to one at the time. It was awesome, right? So it was like $3,000 a month rent. This is back in 2001. And he went, right, well, let's just pay that. What can I get for that money? And when you find well, anywhere,
4: yeah, fuck.
3: yeah. So then we phone a Balmain estate agent and Hey, can you find me a property for anything around the $3,000 a month? Right. Yeah. We're sitting <laughs> in a bar. We're sitting in a, in a pub in London. Yeah. And she went, uh, yeah, we can do that. And my, I had like a friends with benefits who was backpacking around the country at the time. Yeah. I phoned her and went, right, get your ass to Sydney. Um, you're just going to have to take care of some stuff for us go and see this agent and just sort a house out. We didn't do the same for an office, did all this kind of stuff. Anyway, I flew down here. So she's just taking care of it. She's gone from backpacking to here's a $3,000 apartment in Balmain.
1: So she was in Australia at the time. Yeah. She was oh, okay. literally just I was wondering like, what the benefits were for a second. I'm like, wait, did you fly her? No, no, the- it's, it's like an ex friends with benefits, <laughs> but you know, anyway,
3: okay, um, yep. I said, look, you know, we'll, we'll ramp up the benefit options. Yeah. But, um, we, uh, so she came down to Sydney and took care of the apartment. I flew in. we got this fucking awesome apartment, looking straight down the harbour in Balmain. You know, it's everything that you dream of. Yeah. I'm earning three to one because I'm on US dollars. <laughs> I'm not paying tax because yeah. I'm earning from a US company. You're balling. all the I, I've got money in my back pocket. <laughs> I've got nowhere to be but having fun. And I'm knocking out the park. And they're like, hey, are you ready to come to the US?
0: <laughs> I'm staying right here, brother. How old were you then?
3: Uh, uh, I was 28, 27, yeah, 28. Okay, so cool. I'm, I've got some money in my back pocket. I'm living high on the hog. Oh, mate, it was awesome. So I just never left.
1: Amazing. Are you still about yeah. me?
3: No, 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 no. So my, my relationship slowly degraded. There was yeah. a reason we were friends with benefits. <laughs> so it worked out for a little while. Yeah. Uh, no, then uh, then I ended up, I met my now wife. And so we had a short transition period with my previous girlfriend. And then- um,
4: you said that very quickly. I know.
3: Yeah, look, it's a it's an interesting topic with my wife and I because there was a trend. We both went through a handover period, as we call it. <laughs> <laughs> had to had to maintain service. And, um, uh, was that a smooth transition? It, uh, relatively, okay. Relatively, uh, it was for me. I just charged through, and it was all fine. <laughs> uh, then, yeah, so I met and married her, and then we moved to we went to the beaches, we went to Bronte, and then we went. Oh, not. lovely. Short. Yeah, my my wife grew up in the North Shore, so we ended up there because that's what North Shore girls do. Yep. But, yeah, but then we went to the US. We went and lived in the US for nine years. Carolina? No, Denver. Completely. By this stage, I've changed jobs, companies, and everything else. And then uh, I went to the US. We started – well, I was part of a business that started. We we were buying and selling beer kegs for craft brewers.
1: Oh, that's amazing. We'll come back to that, but – you come to Australia. Yeah. What was the job then? It was with the software I was company? consulting. Yeah. It was
3: consulting. So I was deploying and designing warehouses and warehouse systems and stuff.
1: And how long were you doing that for? Uh,
3: that was about two, maybe three years. We set up like a little consulting firm to do it. That was kind of cool. And then I got involved in the kegs because I met a guy who knew a guy.
1: Okay. So tell us about that.
3: Yeah. We bought and sell kegs. Literally. It's like a. <laughs>
1: with beer or without?
3: No, without beer. So okay. like um, we treated kegs like you treat shipping containers, right? Okay. You don't own the container. You rent it for however long you need to ship something. So we said, well, kegs are the same thing, right? They're just smaller. So why don't we just rent kegs? Um, Pretty simple principle. This was back in 01, 02. There's only really two brewers worth talking about back then, Mm -hmm. CB and um, Lion Nathan. And the model was we'd go and buy the kegs off them and then lease them back on a per turn. So they'd realise the cash of the asset. We'd lease them back. we put some sexy technology and RFID stuff all over the kegs and – it was a really cool idea. Uh, we couldn't get it off the ground down here. So it was just starting in the US and they were starting to do it because it works well for craft brewers because it's a big expense for brewers to buy kegs and lose, yeah, a, sure. lose a keg. So, Do you
1: mind me asking, how much was a keg?
3: Oh, a keg's about 120 bucks. Okay. Uh, Aussie it still is. And
1: they need a lot, right?
3: Well, yeah, you need a lot. And then the more beer you sell, because you've got to manage your whole supply chain. So you need... Kegs in storage to get ready to fill. Then you need kegs that are in chain at the pub, and then you need the empty ones that are coming back in. So you need three times as many okay. kegs as you've got kegs full of beer, right? So you, managed,
4: so you decided to manage the supply chain process.
3: Yeah, and the asset base. So we yeah, took the, the cost keg. out of it. So if you're a brewer and you need 5,000 kegs, suddenly you've got to go and find $50,000. Or you come to me and you say 10 bucks every time you use a keg. So we just take away the need for capital.
1: And how many right? times can you use a keg?
3: Oh, for 30 years. Amazing. So to- so it's just 1810. It's high-grade steel. So it's quite valuable. And it never loses its money. The problem is people steal them and you lose the kegs. So it's a really cool model. Um, and it works really well when you've got lots of small brewers and craft brewers because then you get a fleet, right? It's more efficient for one guy to own the fleet and lease it out, a la containers, than it is for everybody to own their own, right? Uh, back in 2001, 2002, we had what Blue Tongue was the only craft brewer. So nobody was pooling kegs. So the US was taking off. The US beer industry was exploding. So the US ended the end the company was exploding. So I moved to the US and we started doing it at scale in the US. It's now exploded down here. It's a company called Kegstar down here and it's gone, because craft brewings on every street corner now, right? Bunch of bearded hipsters drinking bad beer. and uh, (laughs) I feel personally attacked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. Uh, (laughs) Well, what's your favourite beer? Oh, Tim Taylor's landlord out of Yorkshire in the UK. Okay, I don't know that beer. No, well, no, because it's just heaven on earth and they wouldn't send it down here because it would kill it. There's yep, a lot of right. bad beer in this country. There's some good beer, but What's there's the a lot. What's the worst beer you've had? Ah, oh, any of the big brands. Bud is pretty bad. Tui's new is dreadful. I mean, there's a lot of bad beer.
1: There's some passion appearing on your face. You no, see that? There's, he's, there's, he's a, lot of,
3: there's <laughs> a lot of bad beer. Yep. There's some really good beer as well. Yeah, And there's some really good new beer, but there's a lot of shitty beer as well because there's a lot of wankers making beer that shouldn't be making beer. Mm. Um, But uh, uh, Capital Brewing's good beer down here. Young Henry's is good beer. I love Young Henry's. But Bolters is good. Um, but, uh, I, I went to uni in Yorkshire in the north of England, which is real beer. Okay. But nobody does cast condition here. Nobody does live beer down here. It's all pretty manufactured. Nobody's figured out how to brew alcohol out. It's pretty, generally the beer here is not great. It's getting better. Um, the best ones, look at the the session beers. Young Henry's have got their 3.5, 3.9. I forget. They call it the Slayer. Yeah. Uh, Coopers have brought out their session. I forget what they call it, but they've got some. Look at the low alcohol beers. If you want good beer, they're the best. Okay, ones. don't go alcohol. Alcohol. A lot of a lot of alcohol in beer is a sign of struggling to brew the sugar and the alcohol out. It's a sign of of a less than great brewer. Okay, yeah, learn something new. And you'll find they're really sweet. They're packing it full of hops to hide the rest of the taste. Shouldn't be like that.
4: Was that why you wanted to get into the kegs business? Because you, no, you, no. Because keg's business
3: threw money at me as a salary and it looked fun.
1: Yeah, he just liked drinking beer. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't worried no, about went, supply chain.
3: I, I spent five years in the north of England, which is the heartland of original, you know, true mm. craft brewing where every pub brewed their own beer. Was oh, that uh, the case? I didn't know that. Oh, it used to be. Like everyone had their own beer and we used to drink at a place called the Dusty Miller, which like, it's like a mini beer festival. You, you, you'd have 12 beers on tap at any time. There's no gas pump. It's all hand pump. And there's no lager, so it's all cast conditioned beer. So the beer is live, so it's actually fermenting in the barrel, in the keg. And then what you do is you put it in the pub, you get it in the cellar, you have to tap it, so you have to get air to it, and you have to let it settle for a few days, and you have to take care of it. So it's, it's a live, active product, right? It's cast conditioned beer. And to get cast conditioned beer coming out crystal clear, what you would think of as normal beer is quite hard. There's a definite skill to it. Not only have you got to brew it in a certain way, but you got to keep it and and manage it and pour it in a certain way. It's got a very short shelf life and all these things. It's really hard to do. So you get very, very little of it. We get almost none in this country. I, don't, I can't remember seeing any cast condition brew in this country. And, um, but I spent four or five years with that. And it's like anything when it's good, it's just heaven on earth. It's as a guy once taught me down here, it's like an angel just pissed on your tonsils. Uh, it's really good, but yep. it's really easy to get wrong. Mm. so well, it's like
1: wine and coffee and things like that right yeah
3: and it's so easy to get wrong because it's so sensitive and then it's easier just to mass produce mm. to his new Bard miller those kind of things because it's clean and easy and you can pump in it's cheaper and all of those kind of things and we don't have a taste for it down here or we're getting it now with all look at the brewers now i mean every day there's another brand another beer mm. and something that comes out so
1: well, i saw a football player launched a beer brand the other day
3: Oh. Well, but Bolter, which is the other big one, that was Mick Fanning, the surfer. He was I he, quite he like was the Bolter's good beer. Well, so they took the brewer Stone and Wood. You know Stone and Wood. Yep. So Bolter poached the head brewer from Stone uh, and Wood to create Bolter because it's all made up in Byron Bay. And Mick yep. Fanning was the money behind Bolter, and then they sold it, I think, to Cub. Yeah, I think I heard that. I think they sold to Cub.
4: So is this your next business ideas?
3: No, when I, when I moved back from the US, I nearly went back into kegs. And my wife said, How about you get a real job for a change? That'll be nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and why know? is that? Was
3: it? Well, a lot I, of pressure I, or? No, I, I run a business in the US, a small business in the US. And it's crazy, right? When you run a business, you're you feast or famine and everything's a, you know, you, you ride the roller coaster of stress and life.
1: Mm.
3: And when I came back, I, w- I was looking back at the kegs. I did a couple of months with a guy that restarted the kegs and the market was ready for it, right? And, uh, he actually offered me a job, and then the same week that he said, come and work for me, Woolies offered me a job, and I went, man, it's going to do, you know, real job. My wife was like, try that. Going to be a real guy again with a real corporate job. So you're what? going
4: to do stuff with Coles, and you ended up doing stuff with
3: Woolies. Yeah, so I, well, I did Coles way back, you know, 20 years ago, yeah. which was actually through Costas, who I'm working with again now. Bizarre. Um, so it's Coles, Costas back in early 2000s. And I, my career started with Sainsbury's in the UK, a big retailer, right? So when I came down, the Coles thing was obvious. Went off did the US thing, which was the oil patch, worked in the oil patch. Um, what? Oil patch? Oil, oil drilling rigs. Oh, wow. Software on drilling rigs. And um, then I came back and then Woolies hired me. I saw a little bit out of the blue, actually. It was bizarre. I had a half an hour interview for my wife afterwards and went, well, I'm never going to work there. Yeah. And they phoned me they a day later ask, and went, do you want a job? And I went. Oh, okay.
1: They just asked you, um, you know, what's your weakness? Yeah. yeah and you
3: what's just <laughs> you're ready. Yeah. These interviews are easy. Yeah, yeah. no, so that was a bit weird. So I ended up at Woolies. So I was back in corporate retail world.
1: So what was that nine years working oil like? How did you get an oil?
3: Uh, I I ended up having a glass of wine with a guy that owned an oil company, which I didn't know. Okay. <laughs> and uh,
1: a glass of wine. Was it one glass? I don't no, believe No, it, that- it, it was quite a few glasses. A keg.
3: No, so we were, I was doing the keg thing in the US yeah. and I was the head of operations, So I was designing and deploying all the tech and we were trying to buy uh, Budweiser's, Anheuser Bush's kegs. Oh wow. Which is quite a big deal. It was like a 30 mil deal and we are trying to say, you know, it was a big and complex and this random guy from a drilling company phoned our salesman and went, hey, you track stuff and can you track stuff on an oil rig? And we went, I don't know, don't know what an oil rig looks like, <laughs> but sure. <laughs> yeah, um, And... The sales guy sort of came in and said, because I had to give all the quotes out, I had to do all the design, and he said, How much would it cost? And I went, I don't know. Um, we sort of made a number up and it came up to about 250 grand, right? And uh, I said, Well, I don't really want to do the work. What we'll do is we'll price ourselves out. So I told the salesman, It's 750 plus. But this is the oil patch in 2006. They got more money than God. <laughs> So he phones him, and he comes back to me and went, yeah, I'd like to meet you next week. I wow. went, oh, oh, shit. <laughs> so we went up to Calgary, and we sat in this boardroom. And I had no idea who I was talking to. I absolutely no idea who I was talking to. Yep. And we sort of went through what we could or should do, and I said, tell me about your problem, what are you doing? What does an oil rig look like? How does it work? And they sort of talked it through. And within about five minutes, it became obvious our software would not do what they wanted to do. Yep. Just, it was so obvious. So I said- you,
4: So obvious to you or obvious in
3: the conversation Oh, to obvious everybody? to me because we hadn't even talked about our software yet. So literally- That's we're, probably a good thing, right? We're, <laughs> we're, we're in a meeting where they're allegedly to demonstrate how our software is going to solve their problem.
4: And you know inside- right? So I've
3: said, what's your problem? And they've described it. And I know within five seconds, I can't solve their problem. Right?
4: Well, that that's interesting. Right? So did, it's kind of cool. What did you do?
3: So I stand up and say- My software right now can't solve your problem, but this is how I would solve it. And we just talked about it. And I I just fronted up. I can't solve your problem. I can't do it. What we've got right now, the way it works, doesn't solve your problem. What you need is a system that does this, 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 and this, right? We sort of essentially workshopped what a solution needed to look like.
4: Were you tempted to bullshit? and No, no, because you're never going to win that battle. Okay.
3: But as we sort of got talking about it, I've actually and I've framed the notes. I've got them buried somewhere at home. We started talking about what the solution looked like, and what they needed wasn't particularly hard. It was just strapping together existing components differently, right? I actually wrote on a bit of paper, "This would make a really cool company!" Exclamation mark! And I'd never set up a company at this point. It just sounded like a good idea. And then we went out for dinner, and we drank quite a lot of red wine, and <laughs> ate lots of red meat. Yep. And we talked about it some more. And we just, like, and I don't know if everyone does this, right? You just, you know, you're sitting there, you're bullshitting in the pub or whatever, and what we should do is build a company that does this, this, and this, and it's so obvious, and you could do all of this. And we just had that conversation. And we were just, you and know, who, who was this? This was me and what who became my business partner, okay. the, the salesman. Who introduced and, you to the, yeah,
1: the and oil rig guys.
3: The, yeah, and this was two of the oil rig guys, right? Yep. And um, we just chatted. Right. And we were doing the, it was what, you know, it's it's a design workshop is what we'd probably call it now. Yeah. You probably charge 10 grand for it. Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) Right. We, we workshop the design and let's bounce that off. Discovery meeting. No no such thing (laughs) as a bad idea and all this. But we went through it all. Right. And we scribbled napkins and it all sounded really cool. And I didn't think much more of it. I've had a million of those conversations in my life. And, uh, the next morning he phoned me and he went, how much do you need? I went for what? Well, that thing we were talking about last night. And I'm like, oh, fuck, he took us seriously. <laughs> um, I'm like, I don't know. I'll work it out. So we went back and had a massive punt on what the number would be, uh, which we didn't know because I'd never done it before. We're literally, I'm just making shit up at this point. It's the first time I write an IM, an investment memorandum, because I've got to try and write down what the hell I'm doing, and I don't know. i so are just, you Googling this? like? No, because that would be the obvious thing to do. We'd just made it up.
1: <laughs> just open Excel spreadsheet and then yeah. just
3: had a crack. Well, I know I need to write some software. I can't write software. I'm suddenly the CTO. <laughs> right? What do I know about software? Yeah. Right. I need software people. Um, and they'll cost money. How much do they cost? I don't know. A lot. And I mean, I've built technical projects and stuff before. So, I mean, that side, you know, build costing a project isn't new. And call it a company. It's just a fancy project, let's face it. Mm. And, you know, make up some wildly crazy, you know, sales forecast and J-curves and all that kind of stuff. Just make it all up, basically. And we sort of had a go at it. And um, it looked ridiculous. I'd never done it before. And they said, look, come back up and sort of pitch the idea and we'll see what we want to do. (laughs) And we all thought we were fucking businessmen. Oh, God, such a muppet. And um, we rock up to Calgary and we've done our maths, right? And on paper, we reckon we need… 1.8 1.8 million.
1: Right? That feel like a lot of money at that time?
3: Well, I've done some big projects at big retailers that 10 20, 30, 50 mil. So it felt like a lot to be asking directly. Yeah. I right? would yeah. never like said, you write a check for 1.8 million. Yeah. I'd gone to corporate meetings and asked for 20, but that's a different, that's kind of yeah, different, different. Right.
1: Yeah. What were you thinking? Like, were you thinking, Oh, he's going to say yes or no way. No, I, or- I,
3: yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking if somebody asked me for 1.8 million, I, no, go away. Yeah. You're an idiot. Right. Because I've never experienced having genuine wealth. It's a, it, it, we'll talk about it in a minute, but the, how investors think is very different, right? Yeah. So I've got that in my head. And then we've said, but actually we should probably ask for a much bigger number because we've probably got some bits wrong, like in yeah. an estimate, right? Yeah. So we'd agreed between us, there's three of us, that we'd ask for three because mm. we're kind of we're kind of playing our best fucking it's Donald Trump contingency card. Yeah. and we're uh, we're negotiating because <laughs> yeah. we're businessmen yep. and we go into this meeting we sort of give the pitch of how the solution would work and we think they're going to spend a lot of time talking about the depth of the solution which takes about 3 minutes and they go yep that sounds cool I'm like, oh, I've got fucking slides like this.
4: <laughs> Which well, gets back to your point around if you've come prepared. If you've you
3: got it and you know it, you nail it, right? Yeah. And so and – People went, can tell, right? Yeah. And they went, cool, that sounds good. How much do you need, they said, yep. right? And at this point, we'd all said, oh, who's going to say it? It's all – okay. yeah. And we went <laughs> – <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Mike, who was the nominated CEO, said, uh, we need $3 million. And it was sort of like, it was probably about a half second pause, but it felt like a lifetime to me yeah, because it yeah. was that horrible cavern of silence. Right. And Tom Wood and I'll never forget it. And he didn't even bat an eyelid. And he looked at Randy who, another one of the guys there. And he went, what we'll do, we'll give you six. Cause you've got it wrong. And how soon can you start? Wow. wow. And, <laughs> and, and we all sat there and I'm sitting there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, cool. Play it cool. Play it cool. Play it <laughs> yeah. cool. You're cool. And, uh, We got in the lift afterwards and we're doing that, looking around doing the, are we allowed to do the dance yet? Are we allowed to do the dance? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, so they, and they literally said, we'll find the money. You're going to start the company. That was in September of 2006. We incorporated in December of 2006. We started business in January of 07 and we deployed our first rig in July of 07. And that system is still live on about five six hundred rigs in North America as we speak.
4: Wow! Wow! Satisfying.
3: Yeah, crazy journey. Crazy.
4: Why aren't you still doing it though?
3: because uh, it it wasn't you know it wasn't profitable enough to really drive. I I learned a lot on the process, but looking back, I could have done it so differently, right? But um, should have asked for twelve. No, it was never about the cash. it was about how we execute the business. But um, it was. Um, it went well. It wasn't powerful enough, but uh, we ran the business for nine years. We sold it just after its tenth birthday. But I, I ran the business for eight years. So I paid myself for eight years. When we sold out, I basically got out what I put in. So, which is not bad after ten years. I mean, what I did by
1: that though because you got the investment. Did you put investment in? I yeah, we down. put some in as well. So okay. we,
3: we put some money in as well. Not huge amounts, but we put some in. Yeah, because um, you got to have founders. You got to have them tied in, right? And. Um, but I, I paid myself for 10 years. We ran a business. I learned a shitload. We had a lot of fun. We've left a solution live across the old patch in North America, which is kind of cool. We learned a lot along the way. I made a lot of good friends. So, yeah, it was a hell of a journey. And then when it was getting a bit marginal, we had the option to come back to Australia. We wanted. We always wanted to put my the girls through school, my, my kids through school down here. So we sort of took the option to to get out while we could. So I did.
4: When did London stop being the centre of the universe oh, then? I-
3: once since as as I got an apartment looking down the harbour and a friend with benefits in the bedroom. <laughs> 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 no, Jesus can't complain to the wife, can I?
4: But, um, but what actually happened? Because that there is that's actually a, a, a big deal.
3: It- yeah, no, it just changed because suddenly I was I was out of the corporate world, which I'd never done, right? I'd gone I I went to a very traditional private boarding school. I left boarding school and within nine days I joined the army. And so I went from highly structured organization to highly structured organization. Um, I was a rubbish soldier, absolutely rubbish. And um, so I got out of the army as quickly as I possibly could (laughs) because that was the dumbest thing I've ever done. And uh, What makes
1: you a rubbish soldier?
3: Because I apparently, apparently not terrific with people telling me what to do.
0: <laughs> Which I don't believe it. <laughs> allegedly,
3: allegedly is not a skill set they're looking for in a soldier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm led to believe they they want more of the following type than the leading type. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so yeah, I didn't do well with that. Dickhead shouting at you all day. You're like, mate, you're just an idiot. Mm. Um, I did my training, did my basic. I applied to be an officer, and they said, yeah, you're okay. Uh, if you get degree, you can come back and be an officer. And I said, ah. Oh, if you pay for me to get a degree, I'll come back (laughs) as an officer. And they went, yeah, you're not that good, mate. (laughs) Uh, And so – You tried. Well, in the British Army, everything called a PVR, premature voluntary release. So when you sign up, you sign up for three, five, or seven years, right, and it determines pay and rank and all these different things. And um, I'd sign up for three, and if you leave before then, you have to pay – when I was there, you had to pay three and a half thousand pounds for every year left to serve, which to me amounted about eight and a half grand I owed, which was more than a year's salary. And I, there's no way on earth I could pay that. And so they said, all right, what we'll do is we'll we'll can your PBR. We'll let you out for free, but you just promised to come back when you've done your degree. And I just never went back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're, on, you're
4: on some list somewhere yeah. where, they're, where they're expecting you to return.
3: Yeah, quite possibly.
4: How but good's uh, the name for it?
3: What's it called? The premature what? A premature voluntary release. Like
0: like
1: you need like, a bill for, <laughs> for I've never thought
3: of it like that. <laughs> Yeah, but it's not voluntary, is it? Excuse me, I'm going to go and have a PVR. (laughs) Depends if you're in a rush, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I've got a hot day tonight. I think I shall PVR so I don't ruin it. (laughs) Excuse me, madam, I seem to have PVR. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you Um, go from there, (laughs) Jacob? Well, I was going to ask you. There's nothing voluntary
0: about
1: that, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Might be better to just own it. Maybe it is. Maybe that's what we should say. That was voluntary.
3: Yeah, I've done I,
1: it on purpose. Yes,
3: I, I spurn you by PVR.
1: <laughs> had you been better, I wouldn't have. <laughs> oh man, um, I wanted to ask about the night after, like the night of the six million dollar decision. What did you do?
3: Oh, drank heavily. There was <laughs> yeah. a bar in Calgary. Um, shit, I should remember the name. We always used to go there, and their big claim to fame was they had a beer from every country in the world. Wow. And so we'd always go there. One of my partners was South African and the other guy was American. I'm an Englishman. So we'd always go there and drink, drink our way around the world. Was always was it, was thing. it
1: true? There was actually- beer Yeah, it was a massive beer list. They had a really good beer list. Like, you know, um, Islamic countries that don't really drink. Well, I presume if
3: they don't produce beer, they haven't got one oh, from their head, okay. but, uh, yeah, 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 but it yeah. they had this massive beer list. Yeah, well- We'd always drink our way through it. That was like our go-to spot. <laughs> yeah. So we had a lot of big nights up there. Yeah. So, so would that was you, good night. Would
4: you call that a success, the- the The experience
3: with the, the experience, absolutely. Yeah. Like commercially, it wouldn't be uh, like in in terms of startup and and uh, venture capital, it would be considered a a, a wash. You didn't win nor lose. You kind of you got you got out what you put in, which after nine years isn't great. Mm. Um, it's not a fail, but it's not a win. For me personally, massive win. I did nothing but learn. And, you know, on the ground and you learn everything the hard way from hiring and firing to how you select people to how you deal with clients. You just learn all of that the hard way, which is cool. And you get some great experiences. You, you get some great relationships and all of those things out of it. So, yeah, no, and massive success. I And I get to go back and say I gave it a go and I did it and I had a go and a lot of, other, a lot of people talk about it and never do it, right?
1: 100%. So for somebody that wants to start something that needs capital investment, Yep. What's the one learning that you'd share with them?
3: Um, justify why the bank wouldn't lend it to you. If you can make that argument, then you can justify. The, the biggest single question you've got to answer is, why, if, why wouldn't I borrow money to do this? If you can answer that with absolute genuine um, validity, then that's, the rest of the process becomes easy, in my opinion.
1: Can you give us an example of a reason
3: why? Well, a reason why you wouldn't get lending. Well, because what what it forces you to do there is ask the question, why aren't you taking the risk, Mm. right? That's the fundamental question that you've got to answer. That's even a step back, isn't it? Yeah. If if it's as good as you keep telling me in your PowerPoints it's going to be, just borrow the money and do it yourself, right? So tell me why you can't borrow the money and do it, or why is that a problem, and why wouldn't you take the personal risk for it? And you've got to be able to justify that at every possible level from every level of integrity from the guy that's writing the check to the everything around it. And most people never do the due diligence at that level. They're, they're wrapped up in the whiz-bang, I'll build an app, I'll do whatever shiny object excitement is. The excitement of it. The mm. excitement of it. And I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to have an office with a bouncy ball and all that kind of crap. <laughs> um, so all, how did
4: you answer that question then? Did, how did you go about doing that?
3: Well, the well. so my answer is the most obvious, right? Which is there's a really strong chance it's going to fail, so a bank wouldn't trust me, which is the absolute honest answer. This this thing could just go flat on its face. There's, there's actually no financial reason to get into this if you don't believe the story. And banks don't care about stories. Banks care about balance sheets, right? Yep. And so – So my justification is it's a really big story. And what we're trying to do in my business now is, which sounds terribly glamorous, we're trying to change an industry. We're trying to change how an industry thinks, which is a really cool message. Um, It's a nightmare to deliver for the record, but it's a really cool message. So my argument is this. I fundamentally want to change an industry and how an industry does something. The outcome of that change is actually manifests in a better product for us as consumers. But that doesn't motivate anybody in the chain. So what I've got to do is motivate people commercially. And what I mean by that is make them more money or stop them losing money. Yep. And the outcome of that will be a better product for us as consumers, either price-wise and or quality and or less waste in the process, right? In my case, it's food waste, right? So, i to quickly
1: explain what your business is.
3: So, well, I'll explain the problem, yep, right? Please, because that—that's often rather than what the business does. So, the way food moves in our in a modern world, right, is really complicated, um, and um, very, very few people understand it. So, what happens is, it, let's take a really simple example, right? We all eat avocados, smashed avos. It's a course, topic of choice, right? So an avocado grows on a tree in the Atherton Tablelands, which is up near Cairns, right? And there'll be a farmer up there that owns a few acres of land or is leasing a few acres of land and has some avocado trees and he picks this perfect avocado, okay? It will go from him just some kind of sorting or packing center. And they'll do a whole bunch of sizing and scoping where you're this big, this wide, this fat. You're good for a supermarket because people care what it looks like. You're really good for Guzman Gomez because they don't care what it looks like but as long as it tastes right. Yep. Um, you're really good for the guac factory because they don't care about either one of it because they're going to bury it in other flavors, right? So they go through this sorting is process.
1: Is that normally on the premises, like run by the farm no, or is that no, no, somewhere no. else?
3: Because that's a big expensive thing and you need volume yep. for that, right? So you've got a farm which then goes to a pack house. And then they go through this whole grading and sorting and everything else, right? Then you go from a pack house, and because I'm an avocado, I've got to be ripened, right? I go through a process now. So now I go to a ripening shed, which is typically another center. Well, so they right?
1: pick it before it's ripe.
3: Yeah, yeah. So they're a bit like- well, Obviously, um, but like- No, really
0: yeah, but they're, they're, they're right.
3: like they're like bananas. You can you can essentially tell an avocado when to ripen, right? You oh, can, really? You can control the chemistry, right? Yeah. And so then, then you go to a ripening shed and then you go from ripening shed, then a supermarket will buy you. Let's take the simple example. Supermarket will buy you. Then you go to the supermarkets warehouse and then from the supermarkets warehouse, you go to the back of the supermarket store and then you'll eventually go onto the shelf and then you'll buy it. Right. So that journey, the most simplified version of that journey is you've got a grower and packer and ripener owns it, who sells it to a supermarket. And the best you'll get is probably four trips in a truck. Right. That's probably the most efficient you'll get. The reality is what actually happens is 10 farmers form a cooperative who sell to the pack house. The pack house forms a cooperative which sells to the ripener. The ripener then sells to another guy who actually does the deal with the retailer who then sends it to four different warehouses and he exports the other part of it and then sends it in. So we've got these incredibly complicated chains.
1: Is anyone making more money than
3: everyone else in that process? Everyone's constantly arbitrating against everybody else. That's the whole game. That's absolutely the whole game. I'll buy it for slightly less here. I'll create a problem in the market over there and I'll go and prosecute that difference. Right. Mm. It's all about the arbitrage of that. Okay. And what happens is there's complexity in that chain and that's not in and of itself a problem. That's a, an atypical market. Right? Yeah. That's no different to any other commodity or product. The problem is that it changes every single day because today your avocados are ripe and tomorrow Murray's avocados are ripe. So I pick them in different places or it's Tasmanian berries versus Queensland berries, or it's blueberries from wherever, right? So the world, the the physical, because it grows in the sun and the rain and everything else. So your source of supply is constantly changing, right? And then the product itself has this lovely, a word I love about our business called senescence, right? And senescence is a scientific word that means the desire or, uh, or the process of dying and deteriorating, right? It's applied to live objects. We're senescent beings, right? We die and we eventually rot. Okay, when when you pick a fruit or a or something, senescent starts. It starts going off. You call it shelf life or best before or anything else, right? So when I pick an avocado, I start killing it. It's instantly dying. And all, all I'm doing in the supply chain is debating where it is in that senescent curve when you pick it off a shelf. At some point in its rotting, dying lifestyle, it tastes delicious. <laughs> And what we need to do as retailers and as providers of food is we want to make sure you get delicious product when you buy it. There are lots of factors that control for that, the breed, the variety, where it grew and all these kind of things. And then we've got this massively complex supply chain going on, right? What happens is that, Chain breaks, people don't doesn't understand what's going on. One truck's too hot, a warehouse is too cold. It rained on that load, it didn't on that load. This store held it for two days, that store held it for one day. You and I as consumers get a very variable product. Sometimes it's a perfect avocado, sometimes it's not. We get the shits, thrown in the bin. Retailers get the shits, thrown in the bin. That's yeah. food waste. That's how waste occurs. That's one of the big reasons why waste occurs, because we treat it indiscriminately in the chain.
1: Not to mention the actual uh, customer who takes it home. <laughs> no, but that's what I mean. You yeah. and I as consumers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: And, and avocado is a great example. One in two consumers, fifty percent of the time, you're upset with your avocado purchase. Maybe yeah. another product where half the time you get the shits. Yeah.
1: And you spend the most time picking one, like oh, that one's too well, squishy, well, that-, that one's not squishy. And enough. so there's
3: there's all this subjectivity into it. And you're like, yeah. like mangoes is another great one. Ask somebody what the best kind of mango is, and you'll have like fucking like argument on your hands. Yeah. Don't think it's it's fucking KP, and it's a one of these, and it's and it's all. Right. Look, long story short, yep. we apply, there's all this stuff goes on. What Escovox and what our business is trying to do is give data to that supply chain, right? Is to show what happens. Because if you can make data and numbers out of it and make it a metric, you can score it, manage it, and control for it, right? Mm. So the modern food supply chains are the epitome of a, of a wicked problem or a complex problem, right? It's a many-to-many-to-many-to-many relationship. And you've got a dying product and you've got multiple variables involved. You cannot possibly control it. It doesn't lend itself to vertical integration. Woolworths will not buy avocado farms, right? You can't, so you can't vertically integrate to remove the complexity. And why won't they? Is it just too- Because it's just too big. And you might yeah. stop wanting avocados next week because mangoes is in, mm. right? So they can't, They Woolies can't possibly go and own every kind of fruit and crop and everything else in there's seasonal demand. Yep. So- The complexity and the wickedness of the problem remains. So when you have a complex problem, all you can ever do is manage it, right? And to manage a complex problem in a business sense, you need data and facts. Because once you've got data and facts, you can start managing. Yep. So our job, our solution is to provide data and facts about how and where and what condition your food is moving. right? And if you've got raw, automatic, agnostic data about that, independent data about that food, You can make decisions. And so when I talk about changing an industry, what we said was if we provide that service to the industry, because that requires some technology and cost and power Mm. and all these kind of things, right? If we provide that service to the industry, ultimately that will become valuable enough that we can make a buck out of it and we can fund and run the business. And it will be reflected because people can manage those chains better. If they can manage their chain better, they can do a bunch of things. They can charge a premium for their product. Uh, They can charge a discount for poor product. Um, They can know where their product is so they can stop problems from too hot, too cold, and we see waste. So you can start changing it. So like any other business, you just put data on it and you put metrics on it, suddenly you can measure it. That's all we're really doing in very simplistic terms. Mm -hmm. Now, we use a boatload of complicated technology to do that, from IoT devices to soil to software to analytics to AI to you name it, I can hit buzzword bingo right yeah. on the stuff that we use to do that. But that's just a tech piece. And then we're on the journey of trying to convince everyone in that industry to do it and actually use it. And you, then you are fighting uphill against that because you've got retailers and wholesalers and growers and industries and countries and all these different things going on. That's what we do as a business. So the vision to come back all the way to the first question, which yeah. was why wouldn't a bank lend me money to do that? Because on the surface, it's a ridiculous idea, <laughs> right?
1: It sounds like something that you have to be a little bit crazy to try and go solve.
3: Because, because it's, it's, uh, it, once it's up and running and working, it's awesome. Mm. But no one party, no retailer, no grower, no carrier, no one person can actually own the solution. It's got to be independent. So why would I not pour my own money into it? Well, firstly, I don't have that much money Uh, because you need a lot, because I've got to convince a lot of big people to go and do a lot of things, and I've got to invest hard into that money. And it's a really big punt, because just somewhere over the rainbow, if you get that embedded and working, suddenly you've got this thing that everyone in the supply chain can use without scaring each other to actually track and manage food in the chain. And that would be awesome. So
1: where did this idea come from to solve this problem? Were you just eating an avocado one day and you're like, this is
3: uh, shit? So, 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 so the problem's well known, right? Yep. Uh, we all know about shelf life. We all know stuff goes off, right? And we all know that when you go to the supermarket, you get pissed off because some days the strawberries are really good and some days they're not. And sometimes the meat's got two days and some days it hasn't, right? And so everyone knows the problem, right? Um, I was lucky enough to be working at the big retailer. And one of the things we were trying to do was say, how long does it take us to get strawberries to the shelf? And from the farm to the shelf, right? How long does it take? And, well, the actual challenge was different. What they said was take a day out of the fresh supply chain. Fresh is best. Take a day out. The sooner it comes from the farm, the better, right? Of course. Cool. So the obvious question there to ask, or the obvious question to me, is how long does it take now, right? And so I asked a few people, how long does it take? And I asked farmers. I asked store managers. I asked the head of produce. I asked all sorts of people. And everyone gives you a different answer. You're kidding and then you go, well, what what you find is you you scratch the problem. You go, well, today it took two days. Well, that farm took five days. Well, that store took nine days. That one mm. took two. You go, hang on. So we don't actually know. Well, hey, hang on. we got a boatload of computers and systems, a million dollars worth of people and analysts. Let's just go and look at the data. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Wow. So we said, hang on. There's, there's a really fundamental problem. So that was the technical problem. How do I even see and understand what's going on? And so you've got the complexity of that. And then we realized there's a massive commercial problem sitting on the top. We only learned that later. So the journey started with, can I even track it? Right. And it started with my grandmother, right? My grandmother's a hundred years old. Wow. Turns 101 next month. And you talk to her about when she used to go to a greengrocer. So she'd go in and you go and see Bob, the greengrocer, right? And he'd say, Hey, look, these carrots, they were picked two, two days ago. They come from a mixed farm down the road. They're really good. These are just perfect. These are perfect for you right now, Mrs. Wood, because you're making Sunday lunch. And then the next customer would come in and they go, you know, you're having strawberry pavlova next week. Um, these are bang fresh. They'll last until Saturday. You got that engagement, right? That was the power of a greengrocer. When when you lost that control, when we went to modern and we dispatched food supply all over the place, and you didn't, you lost those relationships. Um, you can't talk like a greengrocer anymore because you have no, no knowledge of the history of it. And so all we really wanted to do, the original vision was, wouldn't it be good if I could go into a store, pick up an avocado and be told, it's perfect, it's four days old, it's going to be great for Taco Tuesday, you're fine. Or this one's great for Friday but not today, or whatever it might Mm. be. We use a lot of side issues. We squeeze it, we poke it, we do all these different things to tell us, but that's what we're after. So the first goal was, can we even do that? And as part of that journey, we learned, We can, but the reason we don't is because the commercial problem gets in the way, which is why I come back to what I just said, you've got to create this independent entity. So we said, let's go do it. And it's a big enough problem. The reason a bank wouldn't lend, but the reason I'm excited about it is because ultimately the problem is how we feed people. And the reason we do it so badly is because of, not because anyone wants to do it badly, but there is a systemic issue, which is Scaled created by lack. Me, right? No, it's lack of data. It's just lack of data. Okay. And nobody sets out to throw food away. And nobody sets out to screw it up. But because I'm only one cog in the chain, I have no idea what you've done and what he's mm. done. And this thing's dying along the chain. It's just lack of information stops us doing it efficiently. So we make enough food. We grow enough food to feed the world, but we don't understand how to move it efficiently because we lack the information because we've got too many overlaying problems, commercial and everything else. And we're just trying to shatter a bit of that. So that's kind of a, that's kind of a cool goal, right? That there's, there's a genuine ambition in there, um, which kind of is kind of worth getting up for to some degree. And that sounds terribly, you know, eco warrior. Um, But I'm, and to be honest, I don't, this sounds terrible. I probably shouldn't say it. I don't really care about food waste (laughs) in that sense. Yeah, Yeah. Because my brain is sitting there going, wouldn't it just be cool to solve that, just to untangle that mess a bit and just – my passion is solving the problem. Yep. This one happens to have a really cool, like, genuine yeah. genuine mm. impact behind – it's not just about making people money. We can actually make a difference, which is – that's kind of fun. Uh, it's scary and it's stupid, and, and I don't recommend anybody does it, um, and all of those things. Can you,
1: can you tell us a little bit more about that? Why, why is that, that you wouldn't because,
3: recommend it? Because – Nobody invests in crazy ideas, which now it sounds like it's moronic, right?
1: It doesn't sound that crazy to me. Like no, it, but to me, it sounds like a pretty good idea.
3: Well, but, but nobody invests in dreams. People invest in logical things that give them a return. Yes. Right? Impact investors exist on paper, but not in reality. And so, what, what you've got to do is you've got to find a path that is commercially viable and attractive for all that, because I can't change the motivation of all the players. What I've got to do is find a way to leverage the motivation they have. And whatever, I can guarantee you what I thought the state of play was when I started this business, every day I learn a little bit more and I adjust it again and go, man, did we get that wrong? And so it's just hard work. And particularly for us, we've got this really big dream which gets really big thinkers really excited. But I still have to go back and pay people every month. And you've got to convince a guy who is a BI analyst, tool user, he's a mid-20s, he's at the start of his career and I need him to sit there and build some really cool tech. I've got to pay him and I've got to motivate him and the stories, the big story is really cool, but that doesn't inspire him every day. So you've got to try and find this constant balance between the two. And how do you do that? And then how do you convince your clients on that journey with, yeah, cool story, bro, but what do, I, what do I get tomorrow? Where's my win today? Yeah, you're out solving food waste, but what do I get for my truck of avocados today? Where's my win right now?
1: Are all of those people your clients? Or is there uh, one? No,
3: so no, we've, and that's a lesson we've learned actually. My clients are the producers typically. Okay. So they're ultimately accountable for the food. And right now they have the least control When you think about food, right, I can take, if you give me a shitty avocado and tell me to move it around, I can only ever deliver a shitty avocado. If you give me a perfect one, I've got choices. I can deliver a perfect one or I can deliver a shitty one based on how I choose to deliver it. So you can only ever take a good product and make it bad. You can never make a bad product and take it good. So what happens is the producer is the guy that always gets punished. Mm. You, all, all of you guys, you buy avocados in a supermarket or your local corner shop, you have no idea who grew that avocado.
1: Unless there's a really good sticker on it that tells you. <laughs> yeah,
3: but, and even then, that's probably an amorphous name you wouldn't know. You wouldn't no know. one
1: looks at it, really. And you wouldn't know where it came from. He's going to get this fucking thing off. Yeah, yeah, all of that.
3: <laughs> um, and so we just – my clients are the guys that start because if you can solve for him, everything cascades from there mm. because once you protect the grower, uh, you can then go to the next step in the chain, the ripener, the packer, the retailer, the whatever it is, and go, right – we're going to slowly unpick. So our approach is I'm ultimately solving for the consumer, but I'm going to start the problem resolution of the grower. That's and really cool. close So what, the what's d-
4: the data producing now? You've been doing it for, what, three years now?
3: Uh, two and a half years. Two, two and a half yeah. years. So, so we've been live for just under two years.
4: So you've got data that's being produced. Yes. What's the benefit uh, that it's obviously trying to make money and there's a business benefit, but what is the benefit that you're seeing or producers, and what is the benefit uh, around food wastage?
3: Uh, so the benefit of the producers is is really twofold. Firstly, we've stopped the first problem, which is getting stuff rejected by other people. So what they do, the first thing they get is eyes on their own chain. Is it being done properly? Where is it? Is it cold enough, hot enough, so whatever all, it might be? So there's
4: less blame being laid on the producer? Yeah, well, the first, or, the first or, thing or, they
3: do is they stop the problem so yeah. they're not getting blamed for anything. When the blame is placed on the producer, they can produce facts to say, don't blame me, it's fine, or it's your fault, or it's whatever it might be. So that's a very immediate, straightforward win, right? And they get to manage their business a little bit better. Hey, why is that truck sitting in Townsville for two days? Why is that container at Seoul and not in wherever it might be, right? Are they responsible for that part of it? Well, it changes. Yeah. Yeah based on the deal, the retailer, the product, the day of the week, the carrier, there's all sorts of different things. And if they're not, somebody is, and then there's all, you, you get into an argument difference between custodian and owner, and they might not be responsible for it, but it's their name on the box. Mm. So I'm going to blame them whether they're responsible or not.
1: So how much are they making in avocado on, on average?
3: Oh, it changes every day because it's a market product.
1: Okay, roughly.
3: Are
1: we are talking 20 cents or are we talking more? No,
3: it's probably a bit more in avocados, but not much more. Okay. You normally make about 20% on, on fresh product.
1: And do they have the, the money to invest in technology like this?
3: Yeah, because we're relatively low cost. By the time we amortise it across them, we're a yeah. relatively low cost, which is another problem with the business because what you've got to do is price it presuming that the industry is going to buy it, but I haven't got the industry buying it yet. So, <laughs> so
4: the, <laughs> the producers, I imagine, are not the investors. No, I can't, Even I can't though, have them as investors Yeah, yeah. because
3: if, if the producer is the investor now I've tainted my well, Yeah. because now why would producer A buy it if producer B is the investor? So yeah. I've got to be completely independent.
1: So you stay away from anyone associated with anyone in the chain.
3: So I don't have, yeah, we avoid retailers, producers and carriers and all those yeah, things. Cool. We don't, we don't let them near the, the cap table. Yeah.
1: And he's selling the devices or the
3: data? Oh, we sell a service, which happens to include devices and data. Yeah, there's twice. always there's always going to be another mousetrap, right? There'll always be a better database, a better device, a better something. I'm not here to win the tech race. Yep. I, I'm here to sell the solution and build the solution. Um, and by default, we will use technology. We've ended up building our own device because nobody was building what we needed. So it was yep. just easier to go and build our own. Um, we've developed our own software. We're a very, you know, I mean, you're a tech guy, but we're a very mainstream, we're a You know microsoft shop we're up and down at your level vanilla code right we're smack in the middle but we write it we've got a lot of custom algorithms the way that we've built our intelligence we've got a lot of ai engines we do a lot of smarts around that so we've written and developed all our own software it's very cool and then um it's expensive though right yeah it is but it's an it's a high cost investment up front but ultimately you can amortize it across billions of movement every year. Yeah. So the market is almost unlimited. Yep. Think about how much food moves around the world.
1: Oh, yeah, and the population is rapidly growing, right? So Yeah,
3: and we're – so food waste in Australia is about $20 billion a year. Of yeah. that, about 15%, so about three bill, is um, related to failure in the supply chain in itself. So it's a wow. $3 billion problem just in Australia, and we represent less than 1% of the world's food. So do the math.
1: Yeah, wow. So would you say that that $3 billion is totally preventable?
3: Uh, mostly preventable? Mostly. Yeah, easily.
1: Easily. So the more you talk about this idea, the the less I think it's crazy.
3: No, it's not. It's, it, it's just big. How do you get your hands around it is the problem. That's mm. what scares people, right? How do you get your hands around it? If I, if I described Amazon to you now, it would make perfect sense and you'd say, yeah, that's golden. Try and describe Amazon back in 1992 (laughs) when it started, and you think it's a ridiculous idea. But what he said was, "I'll sell your books cheaper." Right? What I do is I say, "I'll track your food in a truck better." I'm actually building a story out here, but I've got to start. I've got to progress with you. I've got to evolve with you as you go. It's fascinating. It's that's why. So that's where you go to an investor that says, "Who's got a big vision?" who can fund that because the individual transactions can't fund the investment I require upfront to do that. I'm not building a one-stop. I'm not, I'm not, I can't put all of my development design and res- and research cost into my first client. And I'd love to charge millions of dollars per track, but <laughs> don't think I'm going to get away with it. No. So that's why, that's why our model has to be a, an investment upfront model. And that's a high risk one. So, Two and a half years, did you say you've been doing this? Two and a half, in January 18, uh, July 18 we incorporated, August 18. Somewhere like that.
1: Did you go straight from the oil rigs? No, w- no. Woolies, Woolies. And well, oil okay, oil. Woolies, yes, that makes sense. Um, so you jumped in and got investment up front?
3: Uh, yeah, it took us a few months to get the first lot in,
1: yep. And you've gotten more investment
3: since? We're, yeah, we've raised, yeah, a little bit. You don't need to say. <laughs> and I, we're about to go out and raise a whole lot more.
1: So when you did the initial raise, were you aware that, all right, we're going to have to do this again?
3: Oh, yeah. You're we're constantly dessert? raising. My job is to raise money. That's why I do it. It's quite depressing sometimes. But <laughs> um, no, we 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 will always consume cash. If we grow even half as fast as we want to go, we will keep raising money.
1: And how do you do that?
3: Like, because- I talk uh, to rich people.
1: <laughs> but in terms of equity, how do you maintain a, a level of ownership? Well, how does that work?
3: Uh, I mean, it depends on what you go in. So I, I have- I'm prepared to dilute is a simple answer. I'd rather have t- t- 2% of a billion than 50% of fuck all. So um, no, I, we're prepared to dilute and we work at a, an institutional investor level that understands that power. So we're, we're talking to a particular group and institutional style investor who doesn't look at this as I must own 40 or 50% of it or not at this level. There, the if you even show half a half a way of solving this, the share price will take care of the rest. So it's a it's a long range, high value, crazy punt for these guys. So do you go
1: about things differently to a normal startup?
3: I don't when, know. You don't know. I've never done a normal startup. This is the only one. That, well, yeah, is, I guess this, no this is a normal startup to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because my experience is mainly bootstrapping, right? Where it's like, um, which
3: is an expression for the record that bugs the living shit out of me. Why is that? Because the actual expression is "you cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps." It is a fucking oxymoron. <laughs> that is the original expression. You cannot yeah, do it, is, it. right? Yeah. It's like trying to pull yourself up with your own bootstraps. You can't do it. But it's one of those things that's become bastardised. Have, bastardized you, have along- you
4: tried
3: it? Oh, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> that's you a good can't. Question. It's a logical fallacy. That's how the, the whole thing started. Was sometimes you need help. You need people around you. You cannot pull yourself up with your own bootstraps sometimes you need to put a hand out and reach, right? That's where the original expression comes from. It's a personal bugbear of mine. Yeah, it's been enough. horribly hey, bastardized. Sorry right? to and, trigger and, and you, man. It <laughs> was trigger completely <laughs> triggered. And it's the opposite. Now it's, 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 like the the opposite word, meaning. it's like the word literally, and I've got three teenage daughters Why here. Literally, it was the worst day of my life. Oh, shut up. That's the complete opposite of the word literally. So anyway, sorry about that. Slight tangent. Um, <laughs> and,
1: and something that I've noticed talking to a lot of people that want to start a business, th- they're very quick to give away equity. So I was wondering what your
3: thoughts. Oh no! I, I first thing I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't because look, you know, In the perfect world, and you're right. I'm, and I'm not a startup. In reality, I'm starting a corporation. Yeah. I just happen to be a, a new business. So you're a typical startup, and your accelerators, and your hubs, and your god knows what else. Um, I don't really know that world to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, we weren't developing a little thing that could then grow into a bigger thing you know as we described we're starting we're starting a thing a massive thing and you
1: went you're working backwards yeah we're working yeah, so yeah. we've yeah. started with a very
3: different model we've basically said we need to be a big company fund me like a big company and we'll make sure it takes off um, so it's a completely different approach to i've got a widget or i've got a design or i've got an idea i'll bootstrap it to use the expression i'll Run on the, you know, the sniffing. You enjoy saying rank. bootstrap it. No, it bugs the hell out of me. I could see on his face yeah, yeah, he, he yeah, cringed yeah. as he I, said I, it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Soiled myself a little bit in the process. <laughs> so somebody um, that
1: has a big idea that needs investment. Yep. How do they start out?
3: You got to find people that support that idea with you that that aren't you, right? So if you're you're the guy that's going to build the latest widget or design the best breakfast cereal or whatever the hell it is, you've got to reflect. You've got to find the reflection of your skill set. So you've got to put people around you that can do the things that you can't do. Typically for startups, that's pay you and give you access to stuff like that, right? Yeah. If you're the solution designer, if you're the smart guy, if you're the brains, what you typically aren't is the businessman in the middle, right? So go find the businessman.
1: Is that who you are in your business?
3: <laughs> uh, I'm the, I'm the. Great question. Yeah, it is. I'm not the tech guy, right? I know what I wanted to do. I'm the architect actually is how I describe myself. Okay. Um, I know enough about enough to know that I need lots of people around doing the other stuff. That's
4: part of your challenge, isn't it, in that you, uh, in your architecture, you talk big language. Yeah. uh, And it's hard for others to be able to translate what you're saying. That's
3: absolutely my personal problem, yeah. I'm, yeah. As my, like, year nine art report said, Luke has some lovely ideas but struggles with the execution. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I assume you I, don't tell your investors I think, that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's my career description. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> my gravestone. Are we editing it? Yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 We'll bleep it out. That, that, that'll be my like, yeah, my little, that should be my strap line. But no, so I'm, I'm the architect of what we're trying to build, but I know enough about commercial control, set up, people, motivation, inspire all of those things. I know a little about a little. I'm the classic generalist in that sense, um, so I need smart people around me. So I need developers. I need salesmen. I need accountants. I don't right? think you need salesmen, mate. No, I do because I'm actually not. I'm not great at selling. <laughs> really? But, um, okay. I don't know if I believe that. Well, it depends who you're selling to. Okay. But um,
4: uh, you you sell to investors more oh, than you more than you sell. I'm very good at selling up. Yeah, more than selling the product yeah. itself.
3: Yeah, you're right. I'm very good at raising money. Yep. Um, I'm not very good, but I'm good enough. Uh, So you – Do you want to get better at that? What, raising money? Yeah. No, I'd like to have my own so I don't have to do (laughs) any (laughs) more. But but actually what I have learned, the wealthiest people are very good at raising money. They're wealthy because they don't put all their money in stuff. That's why. It's other people's money. It's always other people's money. Share the risk. Share the load. And. You can't pull yourself up with your own bootstraps. <laughs> Sometimes reach out and grab a hand. It it's a village It's
1: intimidating to take someone else's money on because you're yeah, like, what happens if I lose it?
3: So so you've got to be careful whose money you take and how much is it relative to them.
1: Would you say avoid people that you know?
3: Oh, never take money off your friends. Yep. Ever. No, it just creates problems. That'd be a family.
1: No. So you've got to find independent people. Absolutely. And how do you go about that?
3: You start making phone calls.
4: Would you say no to your family? Oh, like I have if to. They, I have if to. they wanted to. I
3: actually have, I have a friend who is extraordinarily wealthy. Like he's probably hundreds of mil, mm. probably close to Bill. Like fabulously wealthy. Yeah. When I started this venture, he and I said, we'll never talk about money and I will never ask you for a cent because it will only ever taint the relationship. He, he could, financially, he could do this without even blinking. Yeah, he could fund the whole thing. Absolutely, yeah. without even blinking. But it would twist the entire relationship. Okay,
1: so that's that's some advice. But you said um, to start making phone calls. Who, who, who do you call? Who do you start with?
3: You, you Literally, you sit there and you go, Google, how do I find money? You go to a venture capitalist and you phone your first venture capitalist and you start the journey.
1: What's a venture capitalist? guy people that puts that money know.
3: into crazy ideas like this. Okay. So you, you go look for people that have money to invest. What, what a lot of us forget, and I'm absolutely guilty of it, there is a sector of society and wealth out there that wants to spend money on stuff and they don't know where to spend it and they really struggle to find it. And what I will tell you is there is always way more money than there are good ideas. There is, wow. no, there is no shortage of money ever. There's always money, right? All you've got to do is find a way to, to access it. And there are so many bad ideas out there. and I've had plenty of those. Everyone's got them, right? Yep. And, and a lot of people are, create businesses out of them, right? Um, and think of it as a beauty contest, right? You don't have to be good looking. You've got to be the best looking. So if you're ugly but everyone else is uglier, you're going to win. <laughs> so it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. So, But there are always people with – there's always money. There's always bad ideas and there's always people looking for ways to spend the money. Now, Mm. when you're out looking for money, that sounds like a ridiculous premise, but the reality is that's how it works. So we've all got bank accounts or super funds or savings, whatever it is. All those guys do is stick it into a big bucket and say, we think food is a big problem. They create a big fund and they've got X million dollars to go invest in something. They're desperately looking for people to invest in.
1: Well, I hope some of my super is wrapped up in yours, mate. <laughs> I'd be careful I'll what you. you wish for. Um, <laughs> oh, mate, a small percentage. I'm not, I'm, I'm not crazy.
3: <laughs> but, uh, and then, then what you've got to do is you've got to be able to convince somebody that you're the right person to back. Mm. And that changes because what's important to one investor could be irrelevant to another.
1: When you say person, do you mean person like you or uh, your at, idea? At,
3: at this level, it's a person. Because it ultimately boils down to a relationship. Because, especially very early, that first time you go and ask for funding, and you go on any of these, there'd be a million YouTube videos, how to raise money, what is your pitch deck supposed to look like, and all these kind of things, right? And there's no shortage of advice. Um, Some of it's valid, some of it's not. And just about everything you get told, you can always find the the contradictory version of, right? Sure. Um, Ultimately, raising money is going to come down to a relationship, um, it's a noisy place. Lots of people are asking for money. Um, be shameless in it is my, is my only real one. If you want money, you phone people and go, I want to raise a million dollars. I want to raise $10 million. I want $100 million, whatever it is, right? Um, and get used to being rejected. It's like… Like, like sales. It's like, like dating when you're 18, right? <laughs> okay. If, yep. If you accept that you're going to get knocked back more than you get accepted, eventually it becomes pretty easy, mm. right? You've got to accept rejection pretty quickly, and don't take it personally when people go, "That's a dumb idea." No, thank you. You go, okay, cool. I can ask the next guy. The hard part is, at what point is it a dumb idea and you should stop? And and at what point is the investor the idiot? Right? Yep. Because investors aren't that smart, as a general rule, they're not because they're just doing a job, spending somebody else's money.
1: So yeah, typically the inv- <laughs> the venture capitalist, it's not his money. No, or her almost money. never. No, almost well,
3: never, um, because they're just paid to look after money. So. Most of them have a remit or a fund set, right? So they say, okay, we think cryptocurrency is going to be the next big thing. Mm-hmm. So they'll go out to a bunch of rich people and say, you all give me $50,000 and I'll make a big bucket of $5 million out of that. And I'm going to invest in cryptocurrency. And in five years time, I'm going to give you $100,000 back. Right? That's That's a fund. That's a, an atypical VC fund right and here's the rules for my fund i will only invest in cryptocurrency i'll only invest two hundred fifty thousand. and anyone that approaches me must have an existing company and a revenue of five thousand dollars a month they'll have some kind of remit yep right what you've got to do is find the vc that's got a remit that lines up with your business yeah, cool. And there's every kind of that, right? There's the complete seed capital, as they call it. You don't even have a business. You've got nothing but a half-brained idea. <laughs> yep. Right up to, I'm a serious pension fund, and if you've got 20 million monthly revenue and you've got a history of seven years of that, then I'll invest in you. And there's everything in between. And there is every kind of fund from impact investing, I don't care about the profit, to I'm only in it for the profit, to you must be, you know, uh, you know three foot two and blonde to get my money. There's every <laughs> kind of remit out there. Yep. Yep. And all you've got to do is keep flogging away to find that remit. And there's people out there that will promise you that they can go and find that remit for you called financial advisors. Uh, there's, it's no different to any other business. And you just go out and you start pounding the pavement and making phone calls. Can
1: you trust these people? No. So what are your tips around that?
3: Lawyers and gut feel. You've got to learn to love some people and hate others. You've got to, you've got to be able to handle a relationship and work out what's valid and what's not. The hard part is um, not to be desperate which sounds really easy when you're desperate, right? <laughs> uh, when you're not desperate. When you're I mean, not desperate, yeah. but, but desperation stinks, right? Everyone yeah. can smell on you. Mm. Needy is uh, creepy
1: as Murray always says. Yeah, yeah, it is. Needy is yeah. creepy,
3: right? Desperation stinks, all of those kind of things. You've got to – and actually part of that process is you'll learn about whether, you, whether you're really genuine about your ideas or not. Because when you push a lot of these people, um, are you actually genuine about your idea or do you just want money? And it's quite interesting when you start pushing some of these people because then you go, it sounds like a really..." and how hard have you really thought about your idea and how much have you interrogated and pushed it? And you dig around a bit of that and you'll find a lot of people just want money. Just want money, yeah. Or they just want a salary. I don't really care about the idea anymore. Just, I was just,
1: curious to ask you about that. How do you go about paying yourself a salary? Uh, from
3: Absolutely pay yourself. Damn right.
1: But How do you set the salary without pissing off the investors?
3: Well, you just up front and say, that's what I'm worth. And yeah, if cool. you don't think I am, then okay. So
1: market rate, not below?
3: No, I'm absolutely market rate. Yeah, that's good. It's naive to think otherwise is my opinion. Now, that's, a, again, really easy thing to say. Because right?
1: a lot of people who start a business are like, oh, I'm happy to accept, you know, minimum wage.
3: Okay, cool. Then I'll pay minimum wage. Yeah. And, and if you want market rate, then justify to me why you why you should get market rate. I went rate. the
1: same way as you, actually. Yeah. I, I was like, I want to pay myself what I'm getting paid.
3: Yeah. And you've got to have – so. So investors are going to want to have you to have skin in the game in one form or another. Now, that could be financial, that could be operational, that could be, for me, very personally in this business, it's as much reputation and my employability afterwards as it is anything else. Afterwards, if it goes wrong? So if, if it all goes tits up, and even if it doesn't go tits up, right, if it doesn't go tits up, then that's <laughs> what fine. What does tits up mean anyway? It means you're lying on your back, your tits are pointing. Ah, out. Oh, I've right. never thought about that. <laughs> or what we call basic thinking. But i um, uh,
1: We're going to edit that part out.
3: It, if, <laughs> it, if it all goes south, I'm, I'm risking my reputation as much as anything else because I'm the guy that walked away from the big blue chip job. And in our industry in Australia, there's not many jobs available and everyone knows everyone. It's like every small, small industry. I'm kind of exposed. I'm the guy that had the great idea and failed to deliver. But uh, no, I'm I'm absolutely a big fan of pay market rate, pay fairly, pay strong because you get, you get what you pay for. Founders and um, others have to feel the heat and they've got to feel some pressure um, and you can do that via pay, you can do that via targets. There's many ways you can do that. You can do that through structured vesting shares and various other things. There's lots of ways to implement that model and a lot of it depends on the kind of business you've got. If it's a if it's your business and you're the creator and the coder and the developer and everything else and you own 60% of the business, fuck, you're the boss anyway, pay yourself whatever you like. Mm. Um, I'm but one cog in a team of 14 that requires millions of dollars to even get off the ground. Mate, well, I've got to run it like a normal business.
1: Yeah, and I think also you don't want founders to be having financial difficulty at home. You want them to be focusing on the business, not stressing about how I'm yeah. going to pay my rent.
3: So there's there's a, you're right, There's there's a… There's a balance there because you want them to feel some, yeah. you, want, you want to feel the hurt and they've got to have some of the win.
1: You need to be hungry outside of a salary to be a founder. No, exactly right. So yeah. you've got to
3: be, you've got to have, you've got to have an external motivation in there and you've got to be able to convince your investors you've got that.
1: I think you might have covered this, but what is your your motivation? Where do you I just get- love
3: to solve the problem? It's just yeah. such a, I just love to see it work. I love to see that, you know. I love to see it hang together and just work. It's kind of cool when you see it hang together. I'm not, I'm not actually financially driven. Would I like a few bucks in my back pocket? Let's not deny it. Well, I I will never be like, to me, you know, there's like the super rich earning money for the sake of earning money. is just no interest to me. Yeah. Right. I'm the same. Um, Do I want to earn enough that I never have to worry about paying a bill on my mortgage? Man, that would be awesome. I'm a long way from that. So, you know, Once I've got enough money that basically my kids are safe, my house is safe and I can retire, I'm done. That's enough money for me. Um, Really my drive for this is to see it work and I want to, I've got a desire, I want to sit on my rocking chair when I'm in continent and 80 and say, I had a go and I did it and I made a difference. Mm. I think that would be kind of cool to go, I tried. Worst case, I tried, right? And for it to actually work would be just mind-blowing. The, the mental comfort you take from that, wouldn't that be cool?
4: What about the – and we've talked about this, so it's a bit of a loaded question, but trying but feeling like you didn't try enough.
3: Yeah, and, th- and that's the – it's my personal downfall, right, is the could I have tried more? Could I have done a little bit more? Could I – because there's moments, there's things that we have failed on and we haven't failed yet, but there's plenty of chance for that to come along, don't worry. But – you, you look at yourself and you go, well, could I have done the extra hour there? Should I have written the extra report? Should I have made the extra phone call? Because it's, it's great talking about it like this, but um, there's the execution against that is really hard. I've got, to get, there's a, I've got to write an investor report, right, that needs to go out Monday. And here we are, it's what, mid-afternoon on a Friday. I should stop and write that report, right? And so there's going to be a question in my head. Well, Luke, you've just spent an hour sitting and chatting with a few people. It was shit. You could have done for your business. Why aren't you doing that? Mm. And that's the the trade off, right? At what point, if it goes wrong, am I going to look back at that and go, "Mate, hey, you didn't give it everything, did you?"
1: So where does that come from? That oh, voice.
3: I don't know. Deep insecurity, I guess. I don't know. I don't. That's just how I work. Is that? That's an internal monologue for me. I don't know if that's a normal thing or not. I'm convinced, obviously, that what goes on in my head is normal. The more I talk to people, beginning to realise maybe not, but. <laughs> The fact, the look on your face, guy, goes yeah. fucking hell. You he can no, kill me no, no, with no. an axe.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I wasn't. I wasn't meaning to come across judgmental. I'm just curious. You know, no, I, think I, we've I don't all know. Got these a, drivers that come, I yeah. would say, probably from family of origin stuff. Um, it, it, it could
3: well be. There's just a desire to, you know, I don't know. I don't. I can't tell you where it comes from. That's what drives me. Have I, have I put in and done what I should mm. be able to do? Have I given it my best? Because that's what I need to sleep at night. Yes, I did. I, I gave it. Do you think I think it has anything
1: said. to do with like the private school and the army and stuff like that. I have no idea because
3: I don't know any different, right?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh I don't know. I don't expect an answer. I'm just sort of yeah. It, it could fat- be
3: my my old man was always whatever whatever we did was always like, cool, what's next? So I don't know. I mean, I could look back and get all Freudian and blame my mother at some point, but <laughs> um <laughs> it just is. I guess we've all got our own, you know, complex ways of getting there. But how, how,
4: how do you push through when when you're worried and your uncertainty uh, overwhelms you? How do, how do you cope so with that and how do you survive?
3: I personally just go back to a mechanical task. Just do something, right? Achieve something. And if you're smashed and you're busy and you've got – it's all going wrong, just go and do – because you. I, I can get paralysed by it. I think a lot of people can. You get so overwhelmed, you get paralysed with what you should or shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And – and it's very easy to get sucked in the vortex of very negative thinking. And you're like, oh, what am I doing? And you can, you seize up. And actually, I see it in my kids now as well. They get overwhelmed with homework and everything else, and they get locked. Um, my personal approach is, and I'm getting better at this, for a but I'll go and do something very mechanical. Okay, get the email out, fill in the expense report, get the first page of the report written, make the one phone call you don't want to make, whatever it might be. Go and do something. Tick, mm. did that one. Now do the next one. Tick, now do the next one. Just, you've got to reset. I used to do a lot of hiking and climbing, and when it gets really tired and when you're really done, and all you do is you focus on the next step. And we used to do, we, we learned a thing actually in the Army, which was you'd count in eights, right? So you just count eight steps, one, two. When you're running, you count to eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you'd stamp on the eighth. One, two, three, three, four, five, six, seven, stamp on the eighth, right? And you get a little routine going in your head. And then what happens is eventually it's almost, I think, like meditation. You get in this zone where you just go, nothing matters, just the next eight. When I hit eight, I stamp and it all resets and I go back and do another eight. That's powerful. And, um, I and try that's all i on the treadmill now. But once you get into it, and it's it's very, I, I can only presume that's what genuine meditation does, is it takes you somewhere else and you become obsessed with the eight and, and you're everything's screaming pain and you're hurt and you're tired. But you get in that zone and you mm-hmm. just go, I'm here for eight. And if you're doing it next to it, I'm quite competitive. And I'm like, right, I'll just do whatever happens. I'm going to do eight more steps than you. And that's it. And I'll keep going. And when you fall over, I'll do eight more than I'll fall over. And um, so I just do that. When I'm riding, I do it in fours. I do a lot of riding. Four, four cycles. One, two, three, four, one, two, three. And I just keep going. You just count to fours. And that's all I do. And so I'm trying to do that work-wise, which is, right, what's my steps? What's the – so you just keep doing it. At some point, you just got to keep fighting through, right?
4: Yeah, and, and at one point, one of those things that you did, and it's interesting, it's got four components, D, T, F, W. Yeah, yeah. I'll let you describe what how you've interpreted that because Jacob's got the same uh, four steps. Yeah. Tell us about that, how you use that even to write the email.
3: Yeah, so th- that's so different again. So that's how I break down complexity, so – we did the, you know, I think when you first, when we first talked about it, it was data, thoughts, emotions, needs, or something. It was slightly different, yep. right? And I'm, I'm pretty simple bloke. All said and done, right? If I can't, if I can't break it into a simple mnemonic, then I'm buggered, because then I'll never remember it, and it's all a bit too complicated, and I can't be bothered thinking about it. And we talked about it, and it was about, I think it's, a, isn't it, a listening technique or something?
4: Yep, I can't remember. Yeah.
3: It was a that when people talk to you, they're giving you data, they're telling you what they think, they're telling you how you feel, or they're telling you what they need or want out of something. And it became a really simple metric. It became a really easy way for me to break down a problem. So as you sit there and you go, right, what do I actually know? What do I think I know? And a lot of people think they know facts, but yeah, they're very, very really use facts, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What, what do I feel about it? And what do I want out of this? And, um, what I found is we started working it down, and I write it down. Is it, it does a couple of things actually by by putting the feelings in a box, you get to say things like I'm scared, I'm excited, I'm nervous, I'm whatever. You recognise it, and then you get to go right. Don't worry about that right now. So I've I've cool. I and I get to say there's the, almost like this confessional. I'm nervous, and you can tell people in a room that you're nervous, and everyone goes, "Oh, okay, cool, tick." What's yeah. the problem? And then you actually get to talk about it. You 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 remove it. You take the monkey if you back right. So you get to write it down, and then you actually write the data and the thoughts is where most of the work happens because when you actually write the facts down, you realise – you don't have many facts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, normally there's like one fact and then you go, "Actually, I haven't got any facts at all. I'm thinking, <laughs> thinking a whole lot of shit and I'm scared, but yeah. otherwise. Yeah. But what it does is just fragments it and goes, right, well, there's your problem. Go and get some facts and we'll it. You normally have a that. want too, right? Well, there's, it, sometimes there's a want, sometimes the want is just fucking solve the problem. You know, yeah. it's, or it's don't not, feel this. I, I actually struggle more with the wants than I do anything else. Oh, Really? Um, the data and the thoughts. Like when I'm when I'm smashed into the middle of a problem and I can't see the way out, I just start writing it down. And the first thing, the first thing I always write down is my feelings, because that gets them out of the way. That recognizes them and gets them out of the way. Because I go, yeah, I'm scared, I'm excited, I'm nervous, whatever it is. And that's the first thing I write. And it's normally one word. And there's an overriding emotion at the time, anger or whatever it might be, right? And then you go, right now, where are we? And I'm quite strict with myself. I presume everything's a thought unless I can prove otherwise. So you start mm. with that in mind and you've got to be – I think it only works if you are genuinely – if you're ruthlessly honest with yourself and you've got to be able to say to yourself, you're kidding yourself, that's not a fact. Mm. You want it to be one, it would be nice to be a fact, but it really ain't. And um, What's an I, example of that? Um, let me think of an example of that. It's uh, anything even remotely subjective. Uh, the business model is effective. Mm. If I'm thinking of a business, well, he's thing. mad with me. He was the even one that would probably he, get. He's mad with me. Yep. Um, they'll get upset with this or they are going to be happy with this. So yep. if you haven't got the facts, just ignore it. Mm. And then what I found was we started doing it, um, is I found it easier to tell people about the four boxes than try and reconstruct it into a conversation.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It was just you're a data t- guy, right? It was just yeah. too
3: fucking hard. <laughs> and, um, so I'd just sit there with people and go, right, look, I've thought about this. Here's what I know. Here's what I think. By the way, I'm feeling this. But what I'd like you to do. Yeah, it's cool. It's and it really was, cool. It was horribly effective because what people, I basically got to take people on the same journey as me. Mm. And then what you did was you had a fight about the data. Well, that's not a fact. Oh, isn't it? Oh, okay. Well, what is the fact? Oh, okay, cool. Yes mm. or no? And the only time you ever got remote emotion was the, no, no, you, you think that's a fact, but it's not. That's a thought of yours. And so what you ended up doing was arguing about the thoughts, but you sort of removed everything else. And I found that was quite, that was quite a compelling way of doing it. And then I started watching other people. I, I'm privileged enough to work with some very, very senior, very, very effective people, very powerful people. And I noticed their communication, they do it. They recognize whether they formally do it or not, I don't know. But they recognize it. Luke, I am thinking this. I would like that. It's not very common. No, it's not, it's not but it's the common. sign of an effective person. Yeah, most yeah. people
4: blend it together.
3: Well, but even the, – but they blend it, but they're not – it's hard to translate.
1: They, right? they, yeah, they, they can't even recognize that but, it's not a fact.
3: But but it's not even the fact or thought or whatever. What they don't do is segment it very so, – so it all gets very blurred yeah, and yeah, messed yeah. up, and then they miss – what the biggest problem is actually is they put two or three wants against one set of facts or one set of thoughts – so what I've, the big thing to me is, here's the data thoughts and everything else that support this need. So I find the most effective people, and they're all my board members who are very, very senior people, are very concise communicators. Because of fact X, I think thought Y, therefore I th- we want output Z, mm. right? And they they're not structuring like that's just normal thought process to them. And so they're very quick. This fact has led to this, led to this, led to this, right? And it changes everything. And uh, so I'm quite deliberate with it now. I use it in how we talk to people. I've constructed emails with it and I found myself what would have been a, you know, three paragraph wordy bullshit email. I boil down to two or three lines and it says everything. Mm. I saw this, therefore that, right? Yeah, I did the
1: same thing. And what do you guys call it?
3: So I call it, Do the fucking work. Data, thoughts, feelings once. Yeah. Do the fucking work. And so the minute things get harder, I feel overwhelmed, I sit down and go, right, do the fucking work. Jesus. And then I swear Murray's name, curse him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And then we screw it down. But I do it a lot now. I draw a little cross on a piece of paper and I write it down. Yeah.
1: I I, I don't typically, I don't do the same as you. I don't tell people this is data, but I'll just format it that way. I'll just remove the data, the thoughts, the feeling, the headers, and I'll just send the email.
3: So I've- I ran a strategy session. So my board, right, I've got former chairman of Woolies, former CFO of NAB. I've got the CEO of uh, DX uh, Technologies, DXC Technologies. Um, I've got some real power players sitting yeah. on my board. We ran a strategy session just before Christmas. They were all in a room with me, right? We ran that strategy session, and we had, what do we know about this area? So we broke all the, the different markets out. What do we know? What do we think? What do we feel? And I had that. In our strategy session. Mm. So I, I
4: bet they just loved it. But I but they didn't they just, even notice it,
3: yeah. right? So we got to say things like, I feel confident. Mm. Cool. Okay. That's good. I it feel doesn't mean a
1: lot, but good. No, <laughs> yeah.
3: no, but you get to recognize it. Yeah. But yeah, what yeah. happened was, what happened was, uh, one of my guys actually phoned me afterwards and he said, I feel nervous about the competitive space, right? Which, when you dig into it, why? Well, we don't know enough. There's not enough data in what you're about to competitors. Mm. So it changed the conversation. Oh, that's
4: a, and that's a legitimate conversation now. Yeah. And,
3: and it's real. And it's real. But we don't have to talk about its nervousness anymore. Now we're just dealing in the facts. It. Yeah, what, yeah. what have you done about it? What have you learned? What haven't you learned? And we've progressed. So it's quite powerful for that. It's, uh, so it's been, it's been good for that. It's made me a bit more analytical about what's going on. Um, the hard part for me is we, I typically frame it in the negative when I'm struggling when there's a problem is when I, when I apply it, what I've got to do is get better at – because I'm a startup guy, right, or a, a, an ideas guy. So I'm eternally optimistic about some stuff. So when I have really good news, when I'm at the top of the curve, I need to apply it again to bring myself back yeah. down and to begin, try and modulate.
4: And all you have to do is name it say, so I'm
0: feeling quite yeah.
3: optimistic. Yeah, but then that takes all the fun out of it and kind of you just want to, you know, enjoy kind of your, just kind of just have a ride. cut of hours where I'm happy. <laughs> That'd be nice. Well,
4: it depends what your outcome is. If you're wanting to oh, convince. Look at him. If you're wanting. Anyway, <laughs> yes.
3: Bursting <laughs> my bubble.
1: So tell me about balance because this is something that I'm on journey on. Oh, fucking you tell moment. me. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything you do in your life to maintain balance? No.
3: I've got no balance at all. I'm all over the place. I'm wildly out of control. <laughs> we'll move on. Yeah.
1: <laughs> do you want balance?
3: I Well, I like the concept of it. mm. Um, I've had multiple chances to have it and never seem to have taken it. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, it sounds nice. <laughs> um, I've never had it.
1: I love your honesty. I don't think this guy can lie. Huh? Um, <laughs> I,
3: I've never had it. People talk about it. I, I don't know. Um, I'm convinced everyone else has it. Yeah. Um, I I don't. Uh, uh, I don't know. I just seem to lurch from one crisis to another, mentally, emotionally, physically, financially. <laughs> But uh, no, so I don't really know what balance is. anything is.
1: you do to, to sort of um, ensure that you're not always focusing on work?
3: Uh, so in that sense, no, yeah. I have balance between work and social and everything else. I have that.
1: That's what I mean, yeah. Oh, okay.
3: Is what do you think then? I meant? Oh, I thought it's like mentally consistent. <laughs> <laughs> like a balanced personality. No, no, no.
1: So, yeah, I think it's very difficult, you know, for me running my business, also maintaining, you know, a good diet. Yep. You know, exercising, spending time with family, spending time with friends. Oh, I'm okay
3: with that. Okay. And how do you do that? Well, you just do it, which you know, sounds terribly arrogant, doesn't it? But, yes. um No, so um, uh, I, I, you got to live in the moment mm. uh, and you got to be present. Um, and I've got three kids. I've got three teenage kids. I spend a lot of time with them when I can. I like can part of the soccer club and – I'll take any any excuse to drive them somewhere, to pick them up, to get involved and do something. I would drop everything to sit and play a game of Monopoly with them um, and, and then just take that moment. And I'm a big fan of it's okay to jump around mentally on stuff. It's okay. This is relaxation to me. It's Friday afternoon. We can come and have a chat for an hour. This is awesome. Yep. This is balance to me. This is me balancing some of the craziness. Good on you. Right? And because a little bit of distance will always change that you know, you just, it will give you a little bit of perspective. Yeah. Um, and it's very easy not to. Um, and I'm not always perfect at it, but it's very easy to get wrapped up uh, and tie yourself in a knot. I'm generally pretty good. I have a wherever possible I will not work at weekends rule, mm. um, which forces more into your work week, but I'm pretty rigid with it. I'm fairly rigid with it. Would you encourage other Start-up. No, because you've got to find what works for you, right? Okay. Um, It doesn't stop me thinking about the problem, Mm. but I'm not executing against it. And so I will. I do a lot of churning mentally if I'm beating up a particular issue or problem, whatever it is, so that by the time I sit down to write the email, have the phone call, whatever it might be, it's a relatively straightforward mechanical process. So I do a lot of thinking about it, but I will have – like tonight, so it's Friday – I'll get home tonight. We're going out for drinks with friends this evening. I will mentally absolutely shut down tonight. and I'll guarantee you, I won't think about work until probably somewhere mid-tomorrow morning. And, and, and I'll pick just one little issue because I've mentally triggered I don't work at weekends. Therefore, I can choose to if I want to, but I'll only pick a, a very little bit. I won't yeah. worry about the admin. I won't worry about the payrolls. I won't read my emails. I won't do any of that. I will, I will solve and I'll actually work on a problem potentially. But Does that
1: come instinctively to you or do you no, have to work on that? No, it's absolutely
3: forced and yeah. you've got to force that. And when did that happen for you? When I had kids. Okay. Because it's very, they, they gave me a reason to do it. Yeah. I worked with a guy in the US actually and he, he was really good. Um, he's still a good friend of mine. He said his rule with his kids was he'd always have dinner with his kids. That was what he wanted. He never had that growing up. That was a big thing for him. Yeah, awesome. And at four o'clock, he left the office every day and he went home went, no, I have dinner at 5.30 with my kids and we have dinner together. And it never changed his output, his ability to work or any of that, but that was a big, and he forced it. Mm. And there's times where you make the ugly choices and you go, I just have to, right? I'm going to cut out and I'm going home to the family. And And I watched him do it and… That was when we were starting the business in the US. And I remember thinking, you know, there's this oh fucking you should be working 24 hours a day, you're the startup guy. And you realize that's so woefully unsustainable and it's a bit Mm. ridiculous. And so I was like, well, no. And actually I'm a, you know, politely referred to as a knowledge worker, right? I'm, my output isn't how many emails I send. My output isn't how many lines of code I write. My physical output actually does nothing for our business. I'm an influencer and a, you know, it's very much a leadership role. So it's about, am I getting the output some days it's an hour's work, some days it's ten. Mm. So no, it's my kids made that easier because I had a focus point. I need to have something to be busy, but I'm finding myself getting better now. I will happily take an hour just to sit and be quiet. Because that very rarely happens. That's kind of nice. That's uh so now I I don't have a problem with it and I value it mm. and I I actually lose respect for people that won't do it. Mm. Because it's a bit of a misnomer that if you're constantly busy, that's good because you're just driving yourself into the ground. You're getting nowhere.
1: So the guy that went home for dinner at 5.30, would he sometimes work like later in the night if something urgently needed yeah. to happen? Yeah. So,
3: and and it's, you know, we learned to be very output driven. Yep. Um, I'm not an effort driven. Uh, it's funny. We were just having a bit of a debate around our sales targets, right? And... Uh, one guy was like, well, we should have you phone 30 people a day. I don't give a fuck well, how many people you phone. <laughs> your deals you deals with your clothes. Let's talk about the output.
1: I had this conversation this week. Yeah, it's interesting.
3: But what you'll find is what corporations do, it's really hard to measure output for a very small, if you're a very small cog, it's really hard to measure output. So what you do is you measure effort. So you control the process and you go, your job is do this, pick up this, move this. Your effort must be this, so you score effort. So what we get taught when we go into young and junior jobs is that effort is what you measure. And actually I don't care about your effort, right? Mm. care about your outcome.
1: Couldn't agree and, more. And
3: do you generate the outcome? And that's, that's a very different way of thinking. Um, some jobs are just straight effort, right? Um, I want you picking berries, just effort. But still, some people is.
1: will pick berries faster than others.
3: Yeah, they will. And and there's some there, but – and it depends what kind of person you are. And other people are happy to go in and I'll do X effort and I'll go back home again. Mm. And there is a direct correlation between the two. The space I work in, the effort is – um, some weeks it's horrendous. It's a 100-hour week. Other weeks there's nothing and you cruise around and scratch your balls all week. It's great. <laughs> but um, it's – Which week do you prefer? Well – you know. Depends how you cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Depends if it's hot or not. <laughs> yeah. No, so it, it moves around. So we, I'm a big output. Did, I, did you get the result? But that's really amorphous in knowledge and software in sales, that's really hard to prove. So sometimes Do you think you with go, sales? Uh, with, with sales, it's pretty easy. You either got the deal or you yeah. didn't. But um, that's really, when you've got a long sales cycle – and mm. define success of a sale. Well, actually, you know, did I get the $100,000 deal or the $2,000? And how did I do it? It's really hard. A lot of people struggle with this with having, not having output when you're a knowledge worker and not having that de- delineable I What's I a achieve. knowledge
1: worker? Sorry, just can you define I'm that? I'm not test?
3: physically building anything, doing anything. There's no physical output of what I do. Yep. I work with thoughts and… But there's no, Raising there's money no, is no, but that's not physical, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, eventually somebody's, somebody's writing a check and doing it across, but yeah. I'm never actually doing the bank transfer, for example. Okay. Yeah. I My job is I'm working with knowledge and data one way or another, and I'm manipulating it to get an outcome another way. Mm. Most of us are knowledge workers to some degree. It's A guy plowing a field is a physical worker. A guy fixing your pipe is a physical worker. Sitting in an office, tapping on keys, you're a knowledge worker. Mm. That's all. It's a bit of a generic term, but oh, cool. it means you're not pumping out a physical output. Thank you for explaining that. Typically.
1: Mate, it's been great to have you on. Thanks so much for no, this is coming fun. out. Is, um, is there a way that people can connect with you, learn more about your business?
3: Uh, yeah, hit us up, escavox.com, E-S-C-A-V-O-X.com. And uh, yeah, hit us. I think there's an email on there, luke at escavox.com. Drop me a line. Always up for a chat. What
1: a legend. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, Please leave a review and subscribe to keep up to date. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at the Prosper Podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.